Hi, and welcome back to Coco Disaster. I'm Chorpsoy. And I'm Zane Zero. And it's time for us to discuss the spring season. We skipped winter, and there wouldn't have been that much to say about the shows there outside of one or two, but we finished a lot of shows for the spring season. And it's time for us to talk about all of the ones that we finished and the ones that are continuing into next season that we're keeping our eye out on. Yeah, it's going to be pretty cool because there's four or five shows that are coming, continuing into next season, and it's all pretty cool. Yeah, and even the ones that finished up, uh, I think there were a surprising amount of like good, kind of surprising shows in this in this batch of the season. Yeah. But before we talk about that, there's a little bit of news since the last time that we got together to record. Just a little. Uh, first up, because we we live in a hell world, a new anime streaming service has launched. So there used to be the anime network, which very infrequently got exclusives and mostly just got like uh, other uh, territories besides the US to stream on. And it was really bad, but though they have shut that down. And now there is a new anime streaming service called High Dive which is, I think, a $4 a month membership thing. And they don't have a ton of stuff, and I think they're only really grabbing exclusives for outside U.S. territories. But the thing they do have is Legend of the Galactic Heroes. Oh, wow. So the first legal streaming of Legend of the Galactic Heroes is now available uh, in English. They're doing, I think, four episodes a week. Uh, after their launch, eventually getting to 110, or however many there are, which is cool. It's I mean, it's good that this is now accessible and available in a legal and not bad way. I hear that High Dive isn't maybe the best uh, visual quality of all the streaming services available, but, you know, they're just at launch. We'll see how it turns out as they move forward. A lot of the other stuff that they have is like, OVAs and stuff that are typically only available through, like, home video release, like the Amagi Brilliant Park OVA or Beyond the Boundary, uh, things like that, things that otherwise wouldn't show up because they aren't, like, simulcast on TV. KyoAni OVAs? Yeah, KyoAni OVAs and a bunch of other ones like Kokoro Connect and, like, the High School of the Dead one and all the Pat Labor stuff. Like, there's a surprising amount of, like, unique OVA stuff on here right now, which is interesting. That's that's neat. Because, like, very very slowly, Crunchyroll has been getting into that. They've been picking up OVAs and stuff, but this just already has a whole bunch. It's, you know, this is something where, like, if you subscribed even for a month, you'd be able to grab a whole bunch of exclusive stuff and still be kind of satisfied with it, which is neat. I, I'm interested to see how it goes, but please... I don't need to be spending more money <laughs> watching legal anime for a month. I don't need this in my life. Oh. Also, Berserk's on hiatus again. <laughs> Hooray! I like. I don't know if it's that he doesn't do any like beforehand prep where he has a whole bunch of chapters ready to go, or what. But like, at this point, I think since two thousand six, it's been like uh, three months on. Like, six months off has been, like, the thing that he's going for. Like, if Miura can't do this, it's just weird that he keeps coming back for these very small stints, since they have to show up in magazines and stuff, but... Maybe he really is just addicted to Idolmaster. 
Maybe, because he says it's not going to come back till winter. Um, and I think really this group of three months or whatever that it lasted was just like a thing to go with the anime that was coming out. Like, it feels like it was just, oh, well, the anime is out, there's going to be new Berserk, and then we're not going to touch it again. Oh, no. But, like, the new anime got another season announced, I guess, at the end of season two, so... Fucking, I don't know. Why? I Man, I don't know. <laughs> it Like, Berserk can't be that cheap that they can just keep doing this. And I don't feel like the viewership numbers can be that high because of the quality. It's just, it's weird. They could be I wa- watching it to see how awful and bad the animation is. Yeah, like, maybe there are enough people, like, ironic watching it that, you know, because that counts for viewership numbers. And I don't know, the Blu-rays, like, have shown some, like, real serious quality upgrades in terms of visuals. So I don't know if maybe they're being supported solely on those sales. It's just weird. It's very weird. It's weird, too, because people are like, I think it's still good because it's berserk. And it's just like, man. Oh. Ugh. In better news. Uh, while the Kimono Friends Zoo campaign has finished, um, Grape Coon, our beautiful old penguin friend, gets to keep his anime girlfriend. They left the cutout of the Humboldt Penguin uh, Kimono friend in the habitat, just for him. A true victory for love. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> love finally does conquer overall. <laughs> I'm I'm so happy, because um, I don't know, like, I don't know how old, like, penguins are supposed to live, but this one's like 20 years old. He's gotta be close to dying. <laughs> oh, no. I feel like taking that away from him in this in this sad, sad time would just, uh I don't, I, his poor heart couldn't handle it. Oh, no. So I'm glad that in his final years, he's able to uh, enjoy life still. I'm going to look up how long the, they're supposed to live. Oh, well, he's basically, oh, okay. So it says up to 30 years in, in, a, uh, in a, like, a zoo or, like, a habitat. So maybe he's got more happy years to go with this, this beautiful kimono friend. I'm happy for him. God bless. <laughs> Speaking of being happy for people, some people are going to be very happy with this new Dead or Alive Extreme VR <laughs> um, game, I guess, experience? <laughs> experience coming. Uh, it is... So, Dead or Alive Extreme Beach Volleyball 3 is got getting... Um, like an arcade-style VR experience machine being built called Dead or Alive Extreme Sense, where uh, I guess you're going to be able to not only be in VR, but also, like, smell the, the game? Smell-o-vision. Yeah, so I guess you get to smell the characters or the beach, and also there's a misting function added to it, so you can really feel like you're at the beach by getting sprayed in the face with water during your VR experience. Ah, the fourth dimension. Like, <laughs> this is... I, look, arcades aren't dying in Japan, I don't think. They don't need this. I think this is just something the guy behind Dead or Alive really wants to do. Yeah, apparently there are, like, five titles that are going to be part of this, I think, Koei Tecmo VR Sense um, experience. Like, there are five other games that are also going to add smells to your VR experience. But, like, man, 
you know, I, the people behind Dead or Alive, very horny. And I feel like this is just getting more and more horny as it goes, somehow. It's eventually going to reach a horny singularity. Finally. <laughs> like you were saying before the show, it's just going to be that drill tweet about going into VR and fucking the girl rabbit from from Space Jam. Yep. Oh. <laughs> what a treasure. <laughs> oh, okay. So in, in better news, in better release, good stuff news, um... They, so Full Metal Panic is getting a new season, and earlier they said it was going to come at the end of this year, and it was delayed and pushed back, and thankfully it's only delayed by a couple seasons coming out in spring 2018. That's nice. Because I know a lot of people very into Full Metal Panic and very excited for a new season, um, which didn't look good after um, KyoAni dropped their uh, adaptation of the series, but it's coming back. Which studio is animating it? The same one as before? Um, no, because that was Kiwani. At least for the the parts of um, Fumofu and stuff, like the stuff that they enjoyed. Uh, studio Zebek is doing it. Huh. Yeah, so Zebek behind uh, such great... It was They were the ones behind um, the, the other horny pool one. Um, Keijo. I think they did Keijo. Ah, good. Great. Yes. So we're, they're in good hands. They're in very, very good hands with Studio Zebek. They might have also done To Love Rue. And I think they're working on the new Yamato 2199 anime and movie. That's, uh, that's a switch. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's weird seeing studios because you always feel like studios have, like, a type to them, but they really don't. And it's, it's always weird seeing the, like, just the list of things. I I don't, I don't think there's... Anything more obvious than that than uh, David Production, who did JoJo, but they also did the Hyperdimension Neptunia anime. And they did, like, nothing of note until JoJo. <laughs> like, all the other ones are, like, kind of tripey light novel stuff. Yeah, I think they did Bento. Yeah, that sounds right. Or it's like um, like Madhouse, where you go through and you're like, oh yeah, they did, like, Card Capture Sakura and all this other great stuff, and then you see, like, High School of the Dead, and you're like, oh, oh... <laughs> Yeah, they're all over the place. Also, um, Junji Ito is apparently supposed to be getting an anime adaptation, one of his works. They haven't announced what yet or any more details, but something by Junji Ito is getting a a full-blown anime production. That's cool. Yeah, that's really cool, because I think the only thing they've done with that is they made, like, a a movie out of Gyo. And they've done other stuff in, like, live action, but nothing else in anime, which... I feel like just his style of horror maybe doesn't work as well in live action. Like, it, it needs that sort of surrealism that you can't get quite right with CG. Or it could be that uh, manga about a cat, his uh, his cat. Oh, yeah, it could be that great one where he's uh, where he frames all of his cats as very terrifying friends. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's still, like, wrapped up in, like, horror tropes and stuff, but all the big reveals are just, like, one of his cats is there. It's good. It's really good. Yeah, what a- Man, Junji Ito seems cool, and I'm glad that his work is getting more recognition. Has he done anything as recently? I think he did an official horror manga for Pokemon. Oh, right, that thing, the- Right. I forgot about that. It's wild. 
Oh, and he's doing apparently a um a manga adaptation of the novel No Longer Human, which is like a classic Japanese novel by uh, Osamu Dazai. That's cool. Yeah, I I'm glad he still has work cuz I just feel like I haven't heard anything from him on like the 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 western end of news. Uh some other quick stuff um U.S. screenings of A Silent Voice and the uh, newest Magical Girl Lyrical Nanoha movie are coming to the U.S. Which I've been interested in seeing A Silent Voice, a lot of people talking it up, and although it's like available on some streaming services outside of the U.S., I'm excited for the theater experience of that. Hmm. That seems like the sort of thing to be cool. And also, um, a re-screening of uh, The Castle of Cagliostro is coming to the U.S. Oh, that's that's cool. Yeah, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Lupin the Third franchise, they're doing an official U.S. theatrical release of Castle of Cagliostro, which I think might be the first time it's been in U.S. theaters. At least oh. on a, a... like this. I thought it was to uh, coincide with the dub of uh, Lupin going on right now. Yeah, I mean, that might be true as well, because that just started, I think. Yeah, I, I, gotta, I gotta watch that. Yeah, it, it seems cool, because I think they got all the old cast together, so it'd be interesting to see if they still have the chops from, goodness, however long Lupin Part 3 was ago. I think so. I think most of them have been in stuff fairly recently. And this is nice also because I am uh, a failure and have never seen Castle of Cagliostro, so this would be a good time. To finally get in on that piece of culture. Yeah, I've heard it's pretty good. Man, Lupin is 50 years old. That's nuts. Yeah. I don't think there are a lot of other franchises that lasted that long, at least that still stay in the public consciousness like Lupin does. That's cool. Uh, And then in the weird side of news, um, you know those um, Transforming Girl shorts? Uh, like the ones that are all shock and surprise where like a girl turns into a fighter jet or a car. Oh, that? Yeah, those anime shorts are going to be airing on TV. Oh, I thought it was an anime. Uh, no, nope. It was a, it was a web thing, I guess. But now they're going to air on TV as a full series of shorts. Like apparently they have more than just the weird two that they got. Good? I, yeah, gr- great. <laughs> It's, man, it's it's a thing. It's it's all about sort of the shock and surprise of this girl suddenly turns into a vehicle and you don't expect it. But like, also they still find ways to like shove panty shots and stuff in. Like it's still weirdly like sexy about like <laughs> you wanting to fund this car lady. I'm just thinking of the one that I saw where the girl who lost her son hat just has her mouth agape the entire time. That's that's me right now. Oh yeah, cuz the cuz the lady shoots up and it turns out she's a fighter jet. This Yep. God, it's fucking weird. And it's not the weirdest thing because also uh more commercials have come out about um the Uma Musume Pretty Derby project. Uh, ah! <laughs> which is uh Sai Games I guess upcoming smartphone game and also like console game i guess and anime (laughs) which are all debuting next year 2018 (laughs) and if you have fortunately uh missed out on this part of uh, japanese culture well let me inform you 
that this is about girls who are also racehorses. And people go to watch these races. Yeah, but like in the Monster Musume way, not like the they transform into horses or are centaurs. Like, they're just cute girls that have like horse ears and tails. Yep. And they are also idols, and also they are in high school. So we just check off all those boxes, and you've got an instant success on your hands. They are putting all that Grand Blue money to good use. Yeah. And I know that PA Works did the commercials for it. I don't know if they're doing the full anime. I don't know if that information is out. But it is absurd. There is a just disgustingly huge cast of these horse girls. And this exists. And hoof, wow. It, it exists. I don't know why, but it does. The one good thing I can, I can take from this is that they are all given, uh, like real ass horse names. Yes! Like Special Week and Vodka and Air Groove and El Condor Pasa. Yes, I love horse names! It's really good. TM Opera, oh. Like, uh, I'm glad that they all have horse names and that they're, like, really bending into this, but also I'm sad that this exists. (laughs) Racing horse names are one of my favorite things because they're all ridiculous. They're all really good. And they're all just, like, out of nowhere. Like, they don't just name the horses. They have to name them something weird to stand out. Mystery number. <sighs> Orb. <laughs> but yeah, so this is a thing that exists and it's gonna happen. Great. I'm so glad. Thanks, Games. <laughs> Thanks for making Rage of Bahamut and Grand Blue Fantasy. Uh, just so that you could then uh, make this, I guess. Who boy. Oof, wow. But that's all the news. Not, not too much. I mean, it was only like two weeks since we recorded. But, you know, uh, some cool stuff. And actually, I was reminded, there are... The anime tie-in game is coming back. And that makes me really happy. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, the Little Witch Academia PS4 game is coming to the US. So is the Seven Deadly Sins PS4 game. And maybe even the Don Machi PS4 game. Yeah, I... I hope that one does, too, because Don Machi is a pretty charming series. Yeah, and I think the cool thing about all that is just that these aren't, like, mobile games or visual novels like a lot of, like, a lot of current anime video game stuff is. Like, these are full-fledged, like, ARPGs or beat-em-ups and, like, have some real systems to them. And that's, I think that's what's cool is that they're really going back to making some, some real-ass tie-in games. It's, it's nice to have that back. Harken back to the weird PS2 days where, like, they could just make whatever they want or just steal engines from whatever games and put an anime on them. I miss the PS2 era. Yeah, because, like, we're never going to get again, like, the, the, the American devs of some boxing game arbitrarily shoving Yu Yu Hakusho characters onto their system. Like, that's, <laughs> that's the good stuff, and I just, ugh. But yeah, it should be it's it's cool. I I like that this is happening again. Video games are cool, and so is anime, and so making two cool things into one cool thing sounds super cool. And speaking of super cool, it's time to talk about the anime we watched. Alright. In spring 2017. And the first one up, starting out strong with uh, a continuing series both of us have been checking up on, which is My Hero Academia Second Season. A really good show. Yeah, and so if you're not caught up on what My Hero Academia is, um, My Hero Academia 
is basically just a it's a high school series about um, more or less like American styled superheroes uh, learning to become heroes and fighting villains. And it's I think it's surprisingly cool because it does blend a lot of Japanese manga tropes with American style and sensibility when it comes to sort of the way that they they dress and address the heroes and their powers. Yeah, Horikoshi is a, a big fan of uh, our comics over here, and that influence definitely shows up pretty pretty visibly in uh, My Hero Academia. Yeah, you can see it a lot, and it's 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 very neat. And so, with this second season, we're starting off. This this first season was the the sports festival arc. Yep, it's the uh, the traditional tournament in quotes arc. It's not. It does have a tournament in it, but uh, that's only like the second half of it. Yeah, there's also, like, a bunch of other stuff. But this is sort of the Shonen tournament arc, which lets, uh, introduces us to the other classes in the uh, in the UA high school that they go to. And, I mean, just gets really lets all the characters show off their powers in a way that was maybe harder to do when they were setting up the story and everything in the, the first season. Yeah, this is definitely the first major arc in the show now that the whole now that the uh, more or less the the main cast has been introduced. Yeah, so the first thing that happens in the My Hero Academia second season is so they they're they're doing this sports festival which is this huge um, event sort of not only to let the students kind of test their abilities and figure out where they stand on all these different metrics and being a hero. It also comes with this idea that a lot of people all over the world are going to be watching it and, I guess, evaluating them for the possibility of hiring them after school and, like, for internships and stuff like that. Like, it, it all builds into sort of their future, how well they do on this and how well they can show off their powers. Yeah, and a lot of the eyes are on uh, the first years this year instead of the third years because uh, Deku's class survived the uh, the villain attack that was in the last season. Yeah, and that's that's also widely publicized. Like people know about it, but don't know anything about the students. So everyone's on them, and that is to the detriment of the class B at the high school, which is made up of people who I think they say aren't like aren't strong enough to be in A, the class A. No, they're just they're just the other class. They're just the other class. Okay, I think there is like yeah. uh, there is some kind of like internal meritocracy to them, but I wasn't sure if they made that public or not. No, they're just angry that uh, Deku's class is getting all the fame because they yeah, survived the Yeah, class B attack. definitely has some animosity towards those heroes, <laughs> for sure. Well, at least one guy does. Yeah, especially him. Um, Monoma. Yeah, Monoma. Who, it, he gives off a really... I think something interesting is uh, he gives off this very sinister vibe to him just by the way he looks and acts. And that's built upon and sort of developed and uh, turned sideways once you get to know him more within the tournament. Are you sure you're not thinking of Shinso? I'm thinking of Shinso. Uh, who were you thinking of? Manama is the guy from Class B who is all who's like always trying to say that Class B is better than Class A, and he's the guy who can copy oh. powers temporarily. Oh, the jerk off! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry. No, yeah. you're right. That guy also has some real animosity for uh, Class A. Oh, what a jerk. Yeah, Shinso's uh, from General Affairs. That's like the less... There's also like a, also a class of people who 
maybe don't have powers, but are, are like support, support role, I guess. If I remember right, the classes are there's the heroics class, which is what Deku's a part of, general affairs, which is just like a regular old high school. Uh, Mm -hmm. then there's like the support crew, which basically are in charge of like making the costumes for everybody. Right. Uh, and, and then there's, um, the business side, who is all about the hero- the business part of heroics. Yeah, so they don't really take part in the sports festival. They just kind of sit back and, like, do their own analyses along with the people in the, uh, in the audience. Yeah, their part of the tournament is an- analyzing if they're fit for heroics or not, or whatever. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a neat sort of system that they've built up. Like, it really gives this multifaceted look at the school, because even though there are plenty of people in the school who don't have powers or, like, really effective combat powers, they can still find use there, because there's that, um... Uh, what's the name of the girl who builds all the robotics? May. Yeah, May shows up, and she's kind of a big deal in this first half, because she always shows up, and she has these crazy inventions that she's building to sort of supplant superheroes and, like, give them flight and the ability to sort of, um regulate their powers better. Yeah, she is part of the uh, the support class. Yeah, she's very cool. I like her. She is very cool. And so, uh, real quick, the, the, the things that they do, they start with a, like, I guess like a race is the first one. Yeah. And it's, it's a very, that one I think is very cool because they're not fighting, but they're having to use their powers for other purposes. Like, the, these explicit purposes to get to the end as fast as they can, and there are things to fight on the way, but you're wasting your time if you do that for the people who can get around it. Yeah, it's a big, fancy obstacle course. Yeah, and through this whole thing, we have Deku dealing with the fact that he has no way of controlling his power, which is something that's come up from the season one and even through now, is like, he doesn't feel comfortable using his power because he knows that it could very easily go wrong, and basically always does. Yeah, he can't regulate his power, and he's, he has to deal with that during during this bit. And that's good, too, because like he can't rely on this, this super-powered strength, so he has to find these alternative ways of beating the other characters, like uh, <laughs> making the mountain of landmines and flying across, flying across the minefield. Like, it, yeah, that part was great. There's a lot of cool, puzzly stuff that comes to him because, realistically, if he wants to, like, not lose the ability to use his arms and stuff, like, he has to act as if he doesn't have a quirk. Yeah, it's it's still more of a last resort thing for him at this point. Yeah. Uh, after which, there's, like, a... I guess it's sort of like a... <sighs> they call it a cavalry battle. Yeah, that's right. So... One character is propped up on at least two other characters' shoulders, and it's basically an attempt to steal um, ribbons or, like, headbands from other uh, other cavalry characters. Yeah, headbands. Yeah, that signify a number of points that they got for their placement in the obstacle course. And since Deku got first... He had, he's worth one million points. Right, so everyone's going after him. He's, he is, like, the big one to beat. Because I think only the top, the top 16 people within the groups that make it to the, the end of this phase make it to the actual tournament round. That's right. And so that's, that's a whole big thing that, again, gives for a lot of unique 
uses of these powers and everything. Yeah, it has uh, everybody using their powers in really creative ways. Yeah, for sure. And finally, we get the tournament arc, which is, I think, where a lot of the characterization ends up happening, is with these fights between uh, individual characters one-on-one. Yeah, though some of the matches are sort of glossed over, because there's <laughs> right. not much character development going on happening. Yet. Right, it's kind of like, oh, this person loses. The end. Well, they put more effort into this than in, uh, in the manga, which is okay. cool. Yeah, I mean, at least they show fights, I guess. Yeah. Like, it, they still show a full fight, even if it ends in, like, one move. Like, Todoroki's just, like, freezing of the, the dude who makes tape from his, from his uh, elbows. Yeah, he frees him because he's all pissed off at the moment. Yeah, it, it's just, like, a one-and-done, like, minute and a half. Oh, well, he's he can't move. He loses. I mean, uh, other fights, like uh, Tokoyami against uh, Momo. Yeah. That was one that was, like, a lot shorter in the manga, but the Todoroki one was a pretty big focus because Todoroki's the more or less the central character of this arc. Right, so the the big thing that comes out of this is we learn more about Todoroki Shoto, who is the son of a pretty big deal hero named Endeavor. He's number two, compared to All Might's number one. And boy, is he fucking mad about that. He's, I mean, we also learn about Endeavor, who basically had a child with someone with incredible superpowers, specifically to breed the perfect child to, like, usurp and defeat um, All Might. Yeah, it's pretty fucked up that uh, quirk eugenics exists in this universe. Yeah, it's super fucked up, and the whole th- this whole arc with him is about the fact that he is trying to come to terms or, like, wholly reject his father's side of his powers because he ended up kind of with a combo of his his father and mother's powers so he has this like great fire power but he also on one half of his body has ice powers yeah he he refuses to use his uh his fire powers in battle because he's trying to reject his dad right it's it's the ultimate sort of rebellion that he can pull is to try to be the best hero he can without ever using his father's power and in his fight with Deku, he eventually is, like, forced to use his firepower in order to win. Deku more or less provokes him into using it because he wants Todoroki to acknowledge that that's just because it's your that power came from your dad does not mean that it's your dad's power. It's yours. Right, and that you can still use this for good. Yeah. And it's this, it's a, it's a really good moment because it shows Deku sort of, like, Almost killing himself just to kind of push others to be the best that they can. He's, like, breaking his fingers, like, three times over. It's it's really hard to watch because they really color his, like, broken fingers in kind of disgusting ways. Yeah, Deku's spirit of heroism is very strong, but also very self-destructive, and All Might catches on to this. Yeah, and eventually they have to, like, force quit the match and just give it to Todoroki because he hasn't broken all of his goddamn bones. No, they actually collide at full strength, and they ex- they try to stop it from happening, and then there's a huge explosion, and Deku's right, it, out of the it, ring. They actually fail to stop it, and eventually uh, Deku is defeated. Yeah, Deku's just out of the ring at that point. Yeah, it's a, it's wild. It's a really good moment, though. Yeah, it's it's one of the best animated moments in the whole season so far. Yeah, we also get uh, Ochako versus Bakugo, which I think it was also a really good match. 
just because it, it, it places this importance on the fact that Ochako does not have, like, a combat ability. Like, her ability is to make things kind of float, more or less. And against Bakugo, who makes explosions from his hands, there's a real detriment there, but she still puts up this amazing fight to the whole thing. Yeah, and I think the important part is that Bakugo actually acknowledges that that struggle. Yeah. Acknowledges that she's giving it 100% and he responds in kind. Right, like, someone from the outside points out, like, hey, Bakugo, maybe don't go so hard. Like, you don't want to put these at 100%. It's like, well, it's a it's disrespectful to my opponent if I do not go all out. One of my favorite parts about after the match is, like, uh, everybody's like, oh, wow, she's so frail. And then Bakugo co- mumbles under his breath, what part of that was frail? Yeah, like, Bakugo is a jerk and a loser. But, like... He, he still understands, like, power and respect and all that. Like, he still has this sense of, you know, th- that whole moral gra- uh, grounding there. It's really, that's also, like, a good humanizing moment for him, because most of all of his other interactions are, he's a weird jerk-off. Yeah, I, I think we might get to one of the, another part that kind of develops his character more in the second half of this season, but he's still more or less a huge jerk. Mm-hmm. And we also get a moment with the B-Class, like we were saying before. Um, Shinso is a character who has, like, a very villainous power and also, like, kind of a villainous look. And his whole thing is trying to fight against that because he desperately wants to be a hero. He wants to do good, but everything about him makes that very difficult. Yeah, he he faced prejudice because of his power in middle school and... uh and Deku kind of acknowledges that because he sees he sort of sees himself in Shinso that he that Deku also wanted to really be a hero. And they each have these huge hurdles that they have to get over with that, but they you know, they find their way. Like Shinso Shinso's ability is mind control. Like that's a super villainous thing in most contexts for powers. Yeah, but by the end of the match, uh you can hear some heroes saying Wow, Yue's pretty stupid to not place that kid in heroics. That power would be great when interrogating villains. Right, and stuff like that. And he he comes to realize that just because of these previous prejudices and the things that he has to deal with, like, he's not completely lost to the hero world. It's it's very nice. Like, this is a good way of taking this character who initially seems very standoffish and rude and humanize why he acts this way is sort of like this this perception of him that other people have. Yeah, uh, I believe uh, Shinso's going to be coming back in the manga soon, so probably af- I th- maybe after this arc. So That'd that's be cool. pretty cool. And right at the end of where we are, which is episode 13 at the time of recording, we've, I guess, started the, um, the internship arc. Uh, is it an arc? It is an arc. It's, okay. It's shorter than the uh, the school festival stuff, but mm-hmm. it is the next major arc. Also, it could also be called the Stain arc. Because right. Because he's going to be playing a role in it. Because um, during the sports festival, we get introduced to this, the, the hero killer Stain. He's from the 90s. He's an edgy 90s anti-hero. Yeah, he, he comes straight out of, like, American comics, like, in his design and everything. It's wild. But he ends up paralyzing and almost killing um, Ida's brother, Ida being another one of the primary main characters. And, you know, this this internship arc seems to have an underlying current of Ida wanting to get revenge for the fact that his brother has been 
incapacitated in a way that makes it so he might not be able to be a hero ever again. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to say where this goes, but uh you're you're on the right track for sure. And it and it's it's hard because we get like this really lighthearted episode about everyone having to come up with like hero names. But also within it it's like Ida's dealing with this struggle of trying to take over his brother's hero name based on his his brother's wishes and not being able to feel like he can he can live up to that. Yeah, it's it's a really tough moment for for Ida. And meanwhile, we have the fucking Bakugo thinking that his superhero name should be Lord Explosion Murder. Uh, the the old fan translation that I used to read of this was Baron of Explodo Kills. <laughs> That's also very good. Uh, um, but yeah, it's like it, it it balances sort of these these comedic moments with its its more dramatic stuff well by kind of interspersing them in between each other and making it realize that like it's not all just fun. When it comes to the end of the sports festival, there's a lot going on outside of the school with more, maybe a more sinister vibe. Yeah, and uh, we also get to meet Deku's uh, new mentor at the end of the episode. Right, which is also All Might's mentor, or previous mentor. Yes, uh, Gran Torino. And he is a very tiny old man. <laughs> a tiny old man with a cane that is a master of what they do. Oh, incredible. Uh, I'm really excited to see how this the second half goes, because, like, I mean, Turner arcs are fine, but, like, it's going to be interesting to see more of the story develop and more of these characters develop with all of these seeds that have been kind of planted within the first half of this, this season. Yeah, I, I know how it's going to go, and I, I think you're going to see some pretty great moments in this upcoming arc. That's, that's I'm really excited. Um, also, my new favorite character name showed up in this uh in this season which is uh tetsu 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 who is a man who turns himself into iron and it's beautiful yes yes that it's a great name it's a great name and he's he's kind of just there as like comedic foil for um kirishima who has basically the exact same power but i i guess he turns into rock he hardens his skin yeah and so they have basically the same power and so like when they get into a fight, they just, like, end in a draw, and then they have to have, like, an arm wrestling match. Yeah, that part was great. It's really good. Ugh. There, there's just some really good moments, even with the minor characters, and I think that's one thing so far that My Hero Academia has done really well, is balancing all the characters while still putting this focus on Deku and his hero's journey. Yeah, it's, it's one of the reasons I like the show. Uh, poor Koshi really wants to give everybody time to shine, because he loves all these characters that he made. Except for Mineta, and that's okay. <laughs> He has- he'll get a moment. A moment. I mean, he's not always bad, but he just- he happens to have the worst lines in the script consistently. I mean, that's true, but I'm just saying, he- he- even he is going to get a little spotlight. Well, thank goodness. Everyone- everyone deserves a little spotlight. And continuing the hot-blooded action of My Hero Academia, it's time to talk about Recreators. Which has not as much action. Mm, no, but it, mm, and it's not even, mm, well, well, we'll get into it. Recreators is by the, is uh, Rie Hiroe, who is the author of Black Lagoon. And it's a story basically about a, a, a phenomenon where um, main characters or characters from popular series uh, find their way from their fictional world into the real world 
the land of the gods, as one character puts it. Right, because this is where all of their creators exist. And it's about... Well, it's about a lot of things. I guess to start, it seems like it's kind of just like a battle royale of characters from different genres and... That, that's kind of the whole of it, but it, it really builds into something a lot bigger as that goes on. Yeah, it's it seems like the direction they're taking it is that it's a story about stories. Yeah, so Recreators kind of opens up with, I mean, it's a bland protagonist, but he exists basically to be the narrator for this story that otherwise no one would be able to tell. Yeah, he is also, interestingly enough, uh, voiced by Deku. Huh. Yeah. His name is Soda, and he is kind of a, a struggling student and, like, amateur artist. Yeah, it, there's more about him, but I think that should be safe for later. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to it. I'm just trying to... let's For setup, it's like, he, he's watching an anime. I'm not going to remember all the anime names, but he is teleported into it when a character not from the series sort of invades that that uh, fictional world and starts pulling characters from video games and anime and light novels and stuff out of their their media and putting them into the real world where suddenly you know the real world is going to have different consequences than their fictional worlds which is brought up when like a magical girl does her attack and ends up just like destroying a city block and buildings and stuff and this this complication that comes with coming from different worlds that have very different rules to them. Yes, and it should be said that uh, the the magical girl Mamika is pretty shocked when she does all this because she doesn't because in her world blood doesn't exist more or less. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting kind of combination of these different worlds and how these characters interact with these very different mindsets because you have characters from sort of like very dark fantasy stuff where sort of, you know, the the name of the game is sort of just, like, torture and very depressing, you know, storylines. You get this magical girl who's used to everything being very simple, very easy to solve. You know, characters from light novels who have big swords and have magic and suddenly have to conflate that with the, the rules of this world. Because there's this whole thing about how the world is slowly trying to make sense of these characters being in the world, and the more that it breaks the rules of, like, physics and stuff, the more a character is likely to be shut out uh, in order to to sort of keep the balance of the world. Yes, and the main antagonist's goal is to shatter that balance. Right. Completely. Just to, to fucking destroy the world. All worlds. All worlds. All of them. Get rid of them. And uh, it's a very conflicting series because it it goes back and forth between a number of different things that it wants to do within the story. Like, at the start, it very much wants to be an action show. It very much wants to focus on sort of the conflicts between the these different characters uh, from these different, these very different, my, you know, uh, viewpoints. But then it takes like a huge break where it takes a lot of time to justify the existence of itself. Like, there's a good three or so episode run where um, Meteora, who is sort of the the smart character of the group, the one who has all the info. She is the info dump character in her game. And she monologues a lot within the story to kind of justify the world and what's happening. And it's, it's, a, it's, um, it's just kind of structured poorly, I think. is like, we just get a lot of that at once 
where it might have been better suited as we go through these different scenes to sort of build up more of the world and how it works and how these characters pop in from these other stories. Yeah, but one thing it does during that time is it starts to introduce the cre- the actual creators of these other characters and establish them as characters in the story, like uh, Celsius creator and artist. They're part of the they're part of the story too. Right. So Celestia is a character basically from like a fantasy light novel series, and eventually they meet like the artist and author who create them, uh, Marine and uh, Takashi, and it's you know it, it's about I guess having to face directly the things that you have created like realizing that these in in this world these are real people who deal with these emotions and you know these conflicts and meanwhile it's it's entertainment for the rest of us in the real world yeah that that's a conflict that kind of comes up quite a bit in this first season with a lot of characters yeah, not just Celsia, but Meteora, uh, Alisteria, Mamika. Uh, I think pretty much most of the uh, the characters kind of go through this sort of crisis about their worlds possibly being seen for entertainment, and each of them come to their own conclusions about it. Yeah, and all I mean they're they're kind of similar, but definitely like they all come to different conclusions based on the way that they look at their own world through these different lenses. And I think that's what something is really cool about is like, once they finally found their stride and sort of like, were able to balance the character interactions, which I thought was going to be the most interesting part of the whole thing is the way these different characters from different genres end up kind of like clashing or, you know, coming together based on like a unified sense of right or something like that. But then they also balance action and they balance world building within that in a way that makes this story ultimately about how cool it is that media exists, basically. Like, it's a celebration of media and what it can do to the people who watch it or read it or whatever, and the effect that it has on people, whether it be major or minor. Yeah, and I I think that's a pretty cool thing to take from uh, from this, because... Media can really influence people heavily in a lot of different ways. Yeah, and Recreators doesn't really, like, hint at that early to start. Like, it just seems like it's going to be, like, an action fantasy sort of thing. But it really does build into this this celebration of media and the things it can do and the just the breadth of media. And it's it's I think that's really cool because I feel like that's a maybe a stance that a lot of media doesn't take. Like, everything's self-contained, but this is just, like, a, a celebration of all the cool shit that you can do with writing and creating. Yeah, I, I kind of hope it sort of sticks with that theme co- going forward. Yeah, and, and even in the, the major conflict, so our, our main villain is... Um, Altair. So Altair exists, and like the, the whole thing is that um, our main character, Soda, knew the creator of this character, and this is a, a fan character, basically created by a girl named Setsuna, who got kind of big doing, like, art on, uh, basically, Pixiv. Like, doing fan art and stuff, and eventually getting picked up to do her own, like, shorts, and meeting people in the industry, and being able to do these bigger projects. But after some, like, jealous people decide to start a smear campaign on her, it becomes very difficult for her to to deal with the pressure of this sudden popularity 
and the the sort of hate that it brings. And eventually she uh, commits suicide because she can't handle it. And so Altair's, I guess, I guess Altair's mission is to destroy the world that caused so much grief for her creator. Yeah, and the other half of this is that uh, Setsuna and Soda were friends, and Setsuna wanted, uh, basically asked Soda for help when she was going through all of this harassment, and Soda basically just sort of blew her off, and he feels really, really guilty about that, that he felt that he could have done something to uh, to keep her from committing suicide. Yeah, because it, and it makes him very human and sort of, like, tries to build up this complex character within this kind of you know, wrote narrator character in that, you know, he also dealt with the fact that he was really jealous of her for getting so popular when, you know, he was doing maybe not as great work, but a lot of people weren't paying attention to him. And so he he got this this complex about the sudden popularity with his friend and didn't want to talk to her and was very kind of standoffish with her and ultimately caught he didn't cause it, but, you know, he wasn't able to help in a time where he could have tried something. Yeah, he feels complicit. Yeah, and so it's it's about his struggles with that and him kind of learning that the the importance of creating media is to give these stories for people to follow and learn from. And it's, I don't know, I, I think it's cool. It's like unbalanced and it's messy. But I think it's cool now that sort of all the pieces have been put together, and ultimately it's like a celebration of what makes anime cool. Yeah, I hope it definitely manages to be as strong as it has been going forward, uh, because... And maybe even stronger, like, now that they've finally gotten through all of the world-building stuff. Yeah, now that they have a a goal. Uh, So we're up to episode 13 now, by the release. And episode 13 was a recap, but in episode 12... They they figure out, first of all, the Altair's power is that, unlike all the other characters where they, they pull powers from their universe, this very well-developed canon for them, Altair, because she is a fan character, is basically given powers by the fan works that she is in. So when people, like, make fan fiction of her or, like, you know, make these these, like, tribute videos... Anything in there that can be considered a power is then given to her. She is an overpowered fan character, and it's great. Which kind of owns. Yeah, it really does. Because earlier they show, like, one of the characters gets a superpower for a brief moment because the the artist and author put out, like, a, a short story to social media. And because a bunch of people see it and sort of, like, accept it as a part of the canon, she's able to gain this new power. Like, that's the way that all these characters have their powers is through recognition um, by fans and stuff. Yeah, that that part was really, really cool. And Altair happens to be all fan content, so all of her powers are just based on whatever other people want to implant on her. I think it's also worth mentioning that uh, uh, the response that uh, they are going to be coming up with to deal with Altair, which is writing fan fiction that has all of these characters go into their own- cross over into each other's universes and fight Altair. Yeah, so the way they're handling it is they're making these spin-off series <laughs> of their of their content, and assu- presumably they're gonna fit in the characters of creators who have been killed in the in the process of this this whole thing. And 
somehow write in the the way that all of these characters <laughs> cross over and have a battle royale against Altair. <laughs> it's <laughs> like I think you could take from the first couple episodes that it is a very like high concept trying to be really smart series. When it comes down to it, it's like really dumb and really good. It is. It's really, really good. Like the more time it, it fits on actually making the characters fight rather than like world building or justifying why these characters can be here, it it it's really dumb, but in a way that's very charming and very interesting, I think. Like because it plays so much with the existence of media and how it you know, how it moves between readers and viewers and all that and enters the 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 collective consciousness of a of like Japan in this case. Yeah. And they keep introducing like they they have a core cast but every so often they'll introduce a new character like hey, you know, we were able to, you know, break the the break the rules of the world once again and bring another one up and they're getting to the point I think where Altair said like they could only fit one or two more in so we're not worrying about getting too many characters you know, flooding in at the end. Yeah. And we still have our cast of heroes that doesn't really change. Yeah, but there's also a, a wild card character that exists. Yeah, so the, the most of the story has been pretty distinct, like, good guys and bad guys, and I say that with, like, quotes around it, because they they all have more or less similar goals, they just have different ways of going about them. But they introduce- Alice- Alice seems to be kind of waffling on her her uh, alliance at the moment. Yeah, like Alice and Mamika, despite being teamed up with Altair, they were drawn in because Altair says, oh, well, I know how to solve this whole thing with your world. But they all still want to go back to their world. They want to protect it like everyone else. Yeah. And so this wild card character uh, is Magane, who, God, she sucks, but like in a good way, like she is a good character to hate. Yeah. Because she just wants to watch everything burn. She doesn't care about sides or helping anyone out. She's just really happy if she gets to ruin someone's day. Yeah. Magana is having the time of her life. And she's got a really ill-defined power that, like, if she lies and someone calls her out on it, it becomes truth. Like, it's it's a weird thing, and it's it's basically made for a lot of situations where she just gets to become invincible, which is really annoying. Yeah, she she basically is the most irritating character, and if you fall and if you get irritated by her, then oops, her magical bullshit happens, and now she's in, unstoppable. Yeah, and I just I'm hoping that within this whatever battle royale fan fiction crossover they're setting up in the story, Magane finds a way in there and is defeated like by some kind of backfiring of her power. I feel like uh, that the hero character of her story is going to be one of the characters that uh, that come in in the second season. Okay, because that would be cool. Because, I mean, it's nice that they have someone who isn't aligned and really just wants to to really fuck up the the these people's missions and their, you know, their setups. But she needs to lose, like, at least once. Like, she is... In terms of, like, I guess character power, she's, like, at the top because it's so ill-defined. That she can just kind of do whatever right now, and I really need her to get knocked down a peg or 30. Yeah. But again, she plays an important part in the in, in the overall setup of the story, because there needed to be someone there needed to be someone else to root against, because it's really just Altair at this point. 
and everyone else has at least a noble goal, regardless of how twisted the ways they're going about it is. Yeah. But yeah, I don't, um, Recreators has just been, it's been messy. I think that's fair. Like, a lot of people have kind of been down on it because it's it's kind of been waffling on and off with pacing and everything. But I think the the tone they're going for and the things that they're trying to say about, you know, about media and the way it affects people is cool. Yeah, I, I feel like it's been slowly getting better and better ever since they stopped having episodes where Meteora talks for two-thirds of the episode. Yeah, and, like, the action is pretty good. It's not, like, you know, a showstopper or anything, but it's still cool. Like, cool things happen with these characters' powers. And the character interactions as they've gone on forward have been cool. Like, you know, people being able to bond over these similar interests and these different worlds and being able to talk about them. And it almost, like, gives a an argument for better world-building in stories, because, like, there's a point where Cele- uh, Celestia, like, talks to her creator and is like, you know, we don't really have stories in our world. There's no, like, real history or anything that we can follow along. There's not this sort of media that we can fall into. And through it, uh, her creator goes, well, I think next time maybe we'll start building some of that into the world, like a, a greater history, a greater ouvre of work within this fictional world. And it's, I don't know, it's it's charming, ultimately. Yeah, I I like stories that do stuff like that. Also, stories that, uh, that do have a lot of that world building. Yeah, it's I like the way it's going and I hope that it it can live up to what it's building now. Because like at the start it's strong, gets weak and it's been slowly building its way back up to sort of the promise of those first couple episodes. Yeah, and uh since you didn't watch it, uh there was a recap episode that is the most recent episode and it is an entirely in-character recap episode done by Meteora, where she basically just talks shit about everybody, and also includes her coming up with her own OC, a sexier version of herself, who kills Altair and is like, "Welp, that's the end of the story. Go home, everyone." And then she, and then she basically goes, "No, no, that's not really how it happened. Unfortunately, that would be rather disappointing." Yeah, and it, and it, as far as I understand, this is like one of the few recap episodes in anime where like. This is a full-fledged episode. They planned on having this. They did plan on having this. They basically said, well, we put in this recap episode so the producer and the director wouldn't become shriveled husks halfway through the show. Right, like, that's that's charming in the way it breaks the fourth wall, but also just, like, because we've hit the point where, like, everything's gonna start happening, I think it's good that they have this break, so it's like, you can digest everything, get reacquainted with all the pieces... And then when it comes back next week, we can really just, like, get into the plot. Yeah, and it's also worth mentioning that uh, the music video that they keep referencing, uh, World Etude with uh, Altair in it, that's yeah. the ending credit song for this episode. And oh, that's it cool. might be plot important. Probably so for, who knows? maybe for the rest of the season, because I know they would have swapped out by now. That could be true. That would be neat if it was the ending credits theme for the rest of the show. Yeah. Because, uh, well, because the, the new opening starts next season, or next episode, sorry. Yeah. Different song, same performers, and same Suano. God bless. Same Suano. There's a lot of Suano, there's a lot of different Suano songs in the recap episode. It's really weird. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, for for this particular type of show, like, the kind of weird 
blend of high-low fantasy, like, action kind of nonsense, I think Sawano works really well. Like, Sawano has a style, and he keeps getting put on shows that really seem to work with his his way of uh, composing music. Like Thunderbolt Fantasy. Yeah, or like, um, what's... What are some other ones? Like, he did I'll Know a Zero and stuff like that. Like, he has a lot of work in these sort of very specific sorts of, like, action shows. Yeah, it's... He, he makes some pretty good, uh, action-y music. Yeah, and they all have... They all have names like a... Like, he, you know, has a password encryptor to go through all of the titles that he comes up with these songs. Yeah, they're all completely ridiculous. It's great. Yeah, most of them are nonsense, and then, like, the 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 openings at least for this series is just like like alternative passwords like he has like a camel cased gravity wall for the first one and the second one is shout with a zero instead of an o like good ah oh, Samano is cool um but yeah I, I'm excited to see where Recreators goes because it as an original series it has a lot of potential at the end now that everything's been set up. Yeah, I I really hope it stays this strong going forward. So next up, we're getting into shows that uh, only one of us have watched. Uh, It was inevitable. So the first show that I want to talk about is uh, The Eccentric Family 2, which is the sequel to The Eccentric Family, which uh, for a while there, after this second season got announced, Crunchyroll lost the rights to it, so there was no way to catch up in time for the second season. But... As of at least uh, like a month ago or so, uh, the the first season has appeared back on Crunchyroll. So now it's very easy to get back in and uh, and watch both seasons for full context. So the the basic idea of this story is that in Kyoto there are three different races living there, and the one is humans who are oblivious to the other two. Uh, one are Tengus who kind of rule the skies and sort of watch over uh, everything going on from there and then we have underneath the humans the tanuki and the tanuki kind of live their own way they they try to blend in using their uh, transformation powers things like that and it's about the connections between these three races and how they interact with each other and what happens when uh people from these different groups try to to intermingle with the others and what that means about their individuality and their self Eccentric Family 2 comes straight off of the end of the first season. So in the first season, uh, we followed the Shimagamo family, and in particular, one of the children of the Shimagamo family, Yasaburo. And um, in the last season, Yasaburo's father died due to being uh, picked up by a group of humans called the Friday Club, who are aware of Tanuki, and every year do a big celebration where they capture a Tanuki and uh, make it into a stew. And uh, Yasaburu's father was the, the leader of the, the Tanuki families who lived in Kyoto. And so the, the Tanuki society is trying to find a replacement for him. And through this series of events, uh, this other family, very connected to the Shimagamo family, uh, the Ebisugawa family, uh, end up in this big conspiracy to kill off the people in the Shimogamo family and to remove that competition 
so that the the head of the Ebisugawa family can become the head of Tanuki society because he's very he's jealous he is the brother of the uh, older leader and was very jealous of his success in politics and also uh wooing the the woman that they both loved so uh in the end he is sort of chased out of Tanuki society and everything kind of comes back to a, a normal pace for them until the second season which again follows sort of the the political climb for one of the brothers of the Shimogamo family uh Yaichiro as he tries to uh fill his his uh late father's shoes and tries to find his place as well as all the other characters um in the story try to kind of find their place within this world and where they belong and you know what it means to be who they are the Sixtrick family is mostly told through uh Yasaburo's eyes he is the main character and his main thing is like he's very kind of chill relaxed mostly he is just the lens through which we see the world because he is he sort of idolizes humans and he works for Tengu and he kind of has these ends to all these different societies and so his perspective is very unique in that way and it gives us a lot to to build off of the eccentric family as a series was written by the author of um Tatami Galaxy and while the story is very different, it's paced very different, um, it's sort of about uh, different topics, it still has that same sort of layered storytelling to it where you you might feel early on like these episodes are kind of disconnected, like they're they're very episodic, they're very standalone, and these little bits and pieces from the story end up all coming together at the end in this way where you you think back on it and you're very surprised that all these things have a meaning or a connection, but you know, everything ends up being important, even if it seems very minuscule at the time, which is a very cool way of telling stories. It's something that you don't always see a lot of in like this, which is kind of more of like a slice of life, sort of like low key fantasy adventure sort of thing. Like there's a, there's a surprising amount of like, care put into the world which is very neat and it does a good job of blending these sort of comedic elements sort of this like deadpan sort of comedy with it along with this this very interesting drama about moving on and trying to find your place in the world and figuring out what your role is in the great in the grand scheme of things because all of these characters end up having sort of an identity crisis there's like uh, a Tengu who broke his back and is no longer able to fly. So, you know, where does he belong in here? There are, there are humans that have learned the power of, you know, of Tengu and can fly. And they sort of see themselves as this, this blend of both races. They feel like they, they are higher than both of them. And even just the Tanuki who just want to kind of fit in, kind of live their lazy uh, fool lifestyle, as they say. Like just trying to figure out how they fit in and where they belong within their society. It's a it's a very cool series, and there's just a ton of very neat world building in it. Like there's a, there's a moment where they they introduce the sort of like um, this folded painting of hell, 
And it's this very evocative moment where we we get informed about a lot of characters because we we meet characters who supposedly have climbed their way out of hell and are scared to go back because they found themselves back on Earth. We have characters who end up falling through the painting and ending up in hell, and they they have to learn the lay of the land and kind of uh, fake their way through belonging there until they can get their way out of hell. It's a very cool story with a lot of very unique and distinct characters. Going into it like beat by beat, I'm not super interested in because it's the way that the story builds that is really exciting. It's it's about the the discovery of what exactly is going on in this town, but there's just a lot of great character building, there's a lot of great storytelling in Eccentric Family across even both seasons. Like there are things that are introduced season one, like the fact that uh Yasaburo, our main character, can't ever see this girl from the Ebisugawa family who was uh who was betrothed to him at some point called Kaisei. And we never figure out why that is in the first season. It's just kind of a thing. You might think it's like a character quirk. And it doesn't matter because the the progression of the story doesn't really allow for you to question that too much. But by season two, we get a more concrete reason on why this, you know, why she they can't see each other and what it means for their relationship. And that's I think that's really cool is the way that even over the like four years or whatever the break has been between these uh, two parts of this, the story uh, is that there are things to be gathered from the first season that end up being told in the second. Also, it does a good job of sort of making these stories feel uh, complete by the end. Like, by the end of the first season, you're like, okay, well, this there's, there's still plenty going on in this world, but the actual story of what was going on here has been told, and the second season does that as well. Even after it's building off of the first season, it's like, well, here's another concrete story from, you know, front to back. It is its own self-contained sort of story just using the same characters. And yeah, I think it's just one of the biggest surprises um, catching up on that that I've had like this year. Like Eccentric Family is kind of the sort of story that you don't, I don't feel like you see a lot in anime. Like it feels very sincere in a way. It feels very unique, not only just because the art style is different, but just the way that the story is told and the way that these characters kind of interact and develop with each other is a very cool thing. And even with such like a dense plot as it has, it still has moments for sort of its own little self-contained bits. Like uh, there's a part where all the Tanuki get together and they do a Shoki tournament where all of the Tanuki turn into the Shoki pieces and play kind of like um like a live action chess or like a battle chess kind of thing which is kind of which is this cute little moment that doesn't play too much into the whole thing but plays into these character dynamics of the people who are playing the shogi and you know all this other sort of tanuki society dynamics it's it's a very cool show that i recommend like wholeheartedly especially now that both seasons are so readily accessible it's a it's a great story and it's easy to get sucked into that world. Anyways, that's that's enough out of me. It's your turn. All right. So uh one of the shows that uh that I watched was um I believe the full title is uh 
What will you do at the end of the world? <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those. Uh, what will <laughs> what will you do at the end of the world? Are you busy? Will you save us? Which is usually abbreviated to uh, World End. And uh, World End is a post-apocalyptic fantasy story where basically uh, these magical beasts called Timer have uh, overrun the surface and a bunch of islands have floated up into the sky and are the refuge for the surviving peoples that are left, none of which are humans. There are no more humans in the world except for our main character, uh, Willem. And Willem is, as I said, the last human, and he was recently dug out of a cave in an expedition on the surface because he was uh, frozen in ice. Uh, he sacrificed himself to stop a deadly monster many, many, many years ago, and he was basically brought back and is just kind of drifting around from place to place because he doesn't really know what to do with himself anymore because, because everything he knew and cared about is dead and gone. And he finds himself taking care of these weapons, which turn out to be uh, fairies, leprechauns, and they are uh, child soldiers that, I'm not kidding, they're <laughs> child soldiers that are the ultimate weapons against the Temer because they can use these things called dug weapons that humans made. And because they're fairies who have a close relationship to humans, they can use the dug weapons when no one else can, and they are the only ways to fight against the Temer. And if they are necessary, they will have to blow themselves up in a huge magical mm. explosion to get rid of Temer. Oh my god. Yeah, it's something. And basically, Wilhelm is babysitting these, uh, these child soldiers who have been brought up to have... They don't really care about their own lives. They have been raised to believe that they are weapons that they that they are eventually going to explode to save other peoples. And Willem is basically watching over them and trying to make them start valuing their own lives. And it's it was a pretty uh, interesting show, all all things told. Uh, it it definitely goes into well how horrifying it is to uh, have these literal children be fighting these mystical beasts when no one else can. But it also has kind of cutesy moments with Willem bonding with these uh, these leprechauns. And uh, it, I think it strikes a decent balance between the two. And I, uh, I liked it. There is sort of a romance. Well, not sort of. There was a romance between one of them and Willem. Willem is only, like, 19, so he has the whole JRPG protagonist thing of, oh, I was a world-saving hero, and I'm only 19 years old sort of thing. And the heroine, I guess, Cathali, uh, is, like, the oldest of the leprechauns at, like, 15 years old. And in addition to having, like, cute bits of their relationship, like their interactions being really cute and stuff with all the other girls. Uh, Cathali also has her own horrifying experiences that uh, as leprechauns grow older, they start to undergo neural degeneration as what leprechauns really are. are uh, they are the ghosts of, of uh, children who didn't realize that they died. Oh my and god. <laughs> and as they grow older, the, the thoughts of the girl who died start to overwhelm the leprechaun. And they start to lose their sense of self, and eventually, if the leprechaun doesn't uh, explode, 
they uh they lose their sense of self and the the girl who was the leprechaun uh their personality takes over and it is portrayed as being extremely fucked up and horrifying and Kathali slowly undergoes this and it's pretty uh depressing jeez yeah it is it is pretty depressing stuff and Willem is basically grieving dad slash babysitter over all this because he knows there's nothing he can do because Wilhelm has his own complex about not being able to uh to save or protect anyone because he used to like be a babysitter for all these kids and he went off to go fight to protect them but he froze and then he woke up and yeah it basically a lot of this is these two more or less broken people bonding and forming some kind of relationship and it ends in a pretty downer way because it ends with Kathali losing her sense of self and sacrificing herself to save Willem, who is abandoned on the surface. It's... Despite how dark it all sounds, there are some really, like, lighthearted moments, like, um, Willem taking everybody to go eat gyros, which have survived the apocalypse, and helping fight off, um, stop this, like, rebel group from, uh, doing anything in this city because Willem's a strong guy or something i don't know it it's a show that i'm really f- that i enjoyed watching that it was surprisingly good for me but i kind of wish it didn't end on a doubter because there's apparently more story after that and i wish it didn't end in such a somewhat depressing way <laughs> yeah there, it's a it's a light novel adaptation so there are plenty of books uh still to go so maybe it'll come back at some point like this seems like one of the the light novels that were really popular and like people begging for an English release of. Oh, really? That's what I seem to hear. Like I hear a lot of people talking about it uh at least in its uh its Japanese abbreviation before this. So I'm not sure if maybe this is like the impetus to to make more of this or not, but it sounds interesting because it's not quite the the light novel tropes that you'd expect. Like, from what you said, it seems like it's predominantly more about sort of a a mentor role and trying to help these characters who kind of don't have a lot of sense of self-develop personalities, even if ultimately it's futile. It's it's like that half the time, and then the other time it's like lighthearted and goofy. Oh, like, it's him being a dad to these goofy kids. It's half and half. Okay. And it, it just, it, it sounds like it, it definitely is both aware of and sometimes indulges in, but also kind of subverts some of the, the tropes you'd expect out of light novels. Yeah, it, oh, right, yeah, it kind of does, because, yeah, because one of the things that, uh, that's revealed is, like, uh, the world-stopping entity that, uh, Willem fought is still alive, except he's just a harmless skull. So basically dead at this point. <laughs> He he's basically Murray from Monkey Island. He's an evil talking skull, <laughs> and uh, one of his companions cursed himself with immortality. And these two are basically the ones running the whole shebang. They're the ones who levitated all the islands up off of the surface to keep the world as it is going. Okay, and it's actually really great when uh, when uh, Willem meets this guy because he starts needling him immediately because he knew because Willem knew this ancient sage when he was just like a young kid and they immediately go back to that dynamic and it's pretty great that's kind of cool 
But I, I, I mean, like, uh, it does sound interesting, I guess. Like, very early on, you could say, like, this sounds very trite. But it, it seems like there's more to it than maybe you would believe on the surface. Kind of like how ReZero blew up last year. Yeah. Maybe not to the same degree, but in a similar way where it's like, this isn't exactly what you'd expect when you pick up, you know, this anime or the first volume or whatever. Yeah, it it definitely gave a lot more gravitas than I thought it would to the issues that it was dealing with, and I like that. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, I'm glad to hear that. Like, it's always nice when something breaks expectations. And I think in the world of light novels, it's very easy to um, to fall into the same sort of tropes and stuff because they're so popular. Like, we've seen with, like, isekai and stuff. But it's yeah. it's cool that World End sort of takes that formula in a way, because he wakes up 500 years in a completely different world and is able to play with that in a different way than just making him, like, the super-powered badass who all the ladies want to kiss. Well, that's what he used to be. And then he woke up and now his bones are all fucked up because he was frozen for hundreds of years. <laughs> so it's like the sequel to a rote light novel. Something like that. Cool. Oh, that sounds neat. And then uh, next up is another sequel I watched called Natsume Yujinsho Roku, which is the sixth season of Natsume Yujinsho or Natsume's Book of Friends. And so the general plot of this story is that Natsume is a kid who's who can see yokai in the world. He can see these different spirits and different creatures where very few others can. And because he can see them, he is often sort of at the mercy of them as they like bully him or they treat him poorly because they have this frayed relationship between humans and yokai and it causes a lot of trouble for the people around him as he's early on and doesn't know how to handle this sort of power and these situations that he's faced with so he bounces from family to family until finally falling into like a an uncle and aunt that take care of him and he meets he meets this yokai, he becomes friends with him, who has like a real name, but because he takes the form of a cat so often, they call him Nyanko-sensei, who helps Natsume deal with all of these yokai attacking him because Natsume, through his grandmother, has inherited something called the Book of Friends, which contains the names of all these different yokai that his grandmother fought and beat, and basically takes them as indentured servants in a way, like you can call... Um, you can call people through the Book of Friends to help you, and they are powerless to stop it. And so there are a lot of yokai who either want their names back and try to take it violently, or ones that want to steal the Book of Friends for the power that it holds, and stuff like that. And it's, it's a lot about Natsume's learning to balance his human life and his life dealing with yokai, and the way that those intersect and the relationships that build between different yokai and between humans and yokai because there is this huge disconnect because a lot of people can't see yokai and inadvertently do things to harm them, like through taking down forests or just the, the natural expansion of human life causes something to change in them that makes them angry or wary of humans in the way that Natsume changes that when also facing off against people who use yokai kind of as indentured servants like he 
is supposed to with the Book of Friends uh, through these exorcists who basically take other yokai as indentured servants to help stop bad yokai. And um, this season is very little about that struggle with the Book of Friends. It's it, like he doesn't open it once or give any yokai back his name. What it is more about, and this is something that's slowly been happening like since the, the previous season, is it's more about developing these side characters and their relationship with Natsume. There are a lot of episodes in here that are about like Natsume's normal human friends who can't see yokai and like just want to hang out with him because he's he was like the new kid in school and he was kind of interesting. And like his other friends who know about yokai but can't see them themselves. And even like his friends who are exorcists who help him deal more with this human yokai relationship and come to learn about these other relationships that humans have with yokai. It's a very heartwarming series. It deals with a lot of um, negative emotions and flourishes them into these very positive depictions of how these relationships can build and develop and create really good friendships. Or even when uh, yokai who disguise themselves as humans fall in love with humans and have to come to terms with the fact that that doesn't work out, not only based on different life, you know, lifespans, but also just the natural degradation of the ability to see yokai even in people who have that ability. It's a very fascinating show in that it doesn't always have a lot of action to it, but you always feel like something's developing or you're learning something about these characters and their roles they play within the world and nature. And it's hard to get into now because we've got six seasons in on it, but it's still just such a fascinating narrative, I think. Um, I think I talked to this about Jordan about the last season where it gives off this very, like, this warm kind of motherly vibe to it of characters who just take care of each other and want the best for each other and, you know, work together to overcome the the trauma of being able to see these these creatures that maybe don't have the best intentions out for humans and the relationships that build between these two races. I think this season, um, so last season, it had a lot of production troubles and ended up ending at 11 episodes. Uh, and this one also was 11 episodes, but it seemed like maybe they had almost planned for the this reduced episode set because overall it seemed a lot better structured and not quite as bad visually as when it came to production delays before. So it seems like uh, this used to be a, a brains-based thing and it moved to their side studio, Shuka, and maybe they're finally falling into the balance they need to be able to do this series more frequently because Natsume, to start for the first four uh, seasons or so, it was like one a year and then there was a huge break until we got season five. So maybe they're finally starting to find a way to pump this out more regularly, which would be cool. I think this this story is unique in a lot of ways, and it does a lot of really good character building and you know different perspectives on the same uh, on the same situations depending on where people come from in life. It's a it's a really great narrative. 
I gotta say that's not what I expected from a show called Natsume's Book of Friends. Yeah, like, right? Like, the name is so non-indicative, I guess, of the, the, the concept that they're going after. Like, it seems very built around, like, human-human relationships if you give Book of Friends. And it's, yeah, it dives deep into a lot of different stuff and ultimately comes back to the way that Natsume builds relationships with these yokai and makes them friends. But it's, uh, it's very different than what you might expect just off the... It's a title that maybe undersells what's actually going on with the story. <laughs> yeah, this sounds like something I should I should uh, try and pick up and watch at some point. Yeah, it's it's something where it takes a bit to go. You have to give it a couple episodes for it to find a stride. But it's one of those shows that really does build well upon itself and its relationships as it builds. So if you if you find yourself wanting to watch something, I think Natsume is a good series to just try and pick up and see if it it's something that works for you. All right. And then this one's going to be short. Uh, I watched Forest Fairy Five, and I'm going to go more into this. This is a weird. This is a weird show. And um, so Forest Fairy Five started two seasons ago, and it's like a kids show using these Miku Miku dance style like 3D models of like chibi girls who are based on different mushrooms. Uh, so, like, there's Porcini, who is based on a Porcini mushroom and stuff like that, and Muscaria and all of them. And they are these fairies who live in fairy world. Well, okay, so in, in this world, Japan has become the anime kingdom, where you can go meet anime chans. They call them anime chans. And so these fairies are connected to the real world via fairy rings, which they can look through and meet people in the city and stuff. And so it's very, like, maybe Dora the Explorer-esque, where they're meeting adults in the real world and learning about what they do in the world and, you know, kind of the roles all these different types of jobs play in society. And in between, you get, like, these weird vignettes where, like, characters are, like, learning fairy magic and accidentally turn into curry, or a situation where, like, they, they do, like, a, a, a bravery challenge in this dark volcano cave that somehow exists in Fairy World. And also, all of the fairies want to start an idol group, and so that's why they're the Forest Fairy Five. Eventually, there are five of them, and they all join this idol group. And so all of the endings are them doing this, like, weird Miku Miku dance dance to, uh, like, an idol song for the idol group that I think voices and performs the opening and ending and then voices all the characters and season two which i think just finished <laughs> i'm not positive but i'm pretty sure is them giving up sort of the idol thing and they're doing like folk tales and so it'll be like broken folk tales where it's like oh here's momotaro going to fight the oni who are attacking the village but also isun is here and Isun, the tiny man, had his girlfriend kidnapped by the Oni, so he's got to go fight them too. And just like all these sort of mishmashes of popular Japanese folktales and stuff, in sort of like the way that you would expect, like a culture that is divorced from from culture for like hundreds of years to try to piece together the the narrative of folk stories, and it's just and it ends in this super meta. Um, way where all of the Forest Fairy 5 have grown up and now they have these horrifying, bad 3D models of them as adults. And one of the characters 
gets sucked into the storybook they created of messed up story of folk tales, and they have to like chase one of the characters down because they think that they got kidnapped. It's it's a really weird, but also very distinctly like for children show, <laughs> but not in the way that like I don't know. Mm, like maybe even My Hero Academia is sort of for little kids because it's like a hero thing. It's like it is it is one step below that, but also has some weird like non sequitur humor and stuff that feels like it's it's meant for older people who maybe have to watch it. I really don't. I really don't know. And <laughs> and it's more. There's more. There's more coming. There's another season coming that I think is them as adults. Maybe doing the idol thing again. It's absurd. Like, there are so many parts of it that feel, like, so out of place and unnecessary. Like, in the last two episodes of this season, there are parts where they'll just break for several minutes at a time for a one-off side character to do an entire, like, choreography dance to this idol song that they just shove into the, into the show. It's, it's just, I don't know. I don't know about Forest Fairy 5. Like, I feel like I started watching it on an ironic level, and then, like, more layers of just weird shit started happening. Like, the entire first season, all of the opening narration for the show is like, hundreds of years in the future, the Poison Mushroom Army attacked the humans and started killing them off. And the only way they could be stopped is by the Forest Fairy 5, these good mushroom fairies who knew the greatness of humanity or whatever. And, like, that's never, um, that's never paid off in any way. <laughs> like, it, it introduces this whole thing as, like, but now we're gonna take it back a couple hundred years and meet the fairies who would start this revolution. And, like, it's just... <laughs> I'm trying to think of words to say, but I can't <laughs> think of anything. It's, it's really weird, and I don't know if anyone should watch it. It's, like, half length, so I guess you could. But it's just such an oddity, I feel, and I guess I'm gonna keep watching it. But Forest Fairy 5 is weird, and I don't know how to feel about it. But I'm watching it because, like, it sometimes gets, like, a really genuine laugh out of me. I don't, I don't know, like, it's kind of got clever writing. <laughs> and it's just absurd. I don't know. Um, that's Forest Fairy 5. I, I don't know how to feel about it still, and it exists, but, like, it's one of those... Because it also gives off the vibe early on of being, like, um... What are those other Studio Bouncy shows? Um, like, Magical Girl Naria Heroes or whatever, um, where it's all improv-based. But it's not. It's very... <laughs> it's very structured, and, like, I think most of it is scripted, but it's just such a... It's just such an oddity that I can't look away. <laughs> and this next show... Is also like that, but for you and not me, because I dropped it. It is, it is definitely for me. I would like to know where you stopped. Sagrada reset. I stopped episode four, which was the which was the one with the the girl who could steal powers. Uh, that that was episode four, that, right? No, that that was uh, a little bit later. You do you mean uh, Okairi? Okay, I'm sorry, Okairi. The the um. I'm gonna go check real quick because I'm pretty sure that was it. But it's a, uh, it's the girl who can like touch people and take powers or make them disappear or whatever. Oh, that's just. Oh, that's that's different. Her power is to uh, to disintegrate things that she touches. Right. Or something like that. But that's the person. 
That's that's where I stopped, is after that confrontation. You've seen the end of episode four. Yes. <laughs> I sure did. Um, so let's so let's introduce this properly. This is Sagrada reset. Yes, yes um, it is. And I, we talked a little bit about it before, but Sagrada Reset is a story about this town where everyone has um, these, or all the young people at least, have these abilities. And they're all, like, oddly specific and kind of weird in use, but it's things like being able to remember things perfectly and being able to reset time back up to three days and things like that. And it's about this group of kids who work together to be able to solve mysteries happening within the town that are often related to these different powers. Oh boy, I, I have some things to tell you about that premise going forward, because it gets to something. Yeah, I'm sure. So, like, early on, so, like, the premise, I think, is very strong. I think that idea is very good, and, like, as far as I watched, it was just that the execution was really poor, and, like, I don't know if I can fault the anime for that, because it's, like, just the dialogue and stuff is as stilted and sort of rigid as the direction. It is! It's so weirdly fascinating how it can be so stiff and yet have these moments where everything just gets put together well. Yeah, like, even that fight scene at the end of episode four is still kinda stiff and kinda bad. Yeah, but the way the way the powers are used is great. Yeah, like, it, like even as it's bad, like, I, it seems like they... Ha- they knew how to use the powers in interesting ways, but man, there's just everything else. I know, I know. It's so, uh, it's so weird how it is like this. So tell me more about it. So, like, the first couple episodes are basically an introduction to the world and the motivations of these characters. So I don't think I really got into the meat of what the MacGuffin is. <laughs> Because there's a thing called the MacGuffin. <laughs> okay, so there is an object called the MacGuffin, said directly in English that supposedly the possessor of the MacGuffin controls all the abilities in Sagrada. Okay. And, uh, well, as it turns out, uh, that's... Okay, so, first of all, I want to talk about what happens at the end of episode four, because that's pretty much why I, I kept with the show, because that ending was so horrifying that I had to see what happened. So at the, okay, so episode four, we meet this character who has the ability to disintegrate things with her power. Yeah, she calls out a body part and a thing, and she can disintegrate that thing with that body part. So say she says a wall and hand, she can disintegrate a wall with with her hand. She can also use this to prevent herself from losing her memories from a reset by making her disintegrate abilities with her entire body. Right, like, you can do such weird abstract things with that after that reveal. Like, it's so fucking nuts. Yeah. And so, at the end, they they get into a fight between this girl and the main guy who is the one who has the ability to remember everything. Yes, he is the only one who can remember things after a reset. Or he was supposed to be. Right, he's, he is brought up as the only person. And then his sidekick is the girl who can reset time up to three days, but they have to set a save point for it. Yes. Which is, like, fun in its own video gamey way, but explain what happens during this fight. Okay, so, um, hmm. she... <laughs> <laughs> I already 
about this, so I'm so excited. I know. Okay, so uh, Kay believes that he can defeat her, even though he has basically no combat abilities. And she basically sets her entire body to disintegrate humans with a touch, and Kay basically calls her out on her bluff. (laughs) No, you're not gonna kill me. And then she's like, yeah, I am. And then Kay's like, no, you're not. And then Kay shoves his own head into her hand and his <laughs> and completely destroys his own face and you can hear his bones crack. Well, the, well, the person, uh, the disintegrating lady just cries and screams and Haruki looks on with her dead stare and a single tear falls down her face and then a telepathic message from another power comes in <laughs> saying, bing bong, bing bong, Haruki, it's time to reset. And then Everything is back to normal, except because she made herself immune to abilities, she has the horrifying memory of her- of Kay's head going through her hand. It's so fu- like, it is the most- (laughs) like, that character comes off as, like, very analytical and very thoughtful, and this moment is, like, the most brutal thing to, like, break the idea of this character. It's nuts. It's fucking ridiculous and horrifying that she has to live with those memories forever, and it is brought up in a later episode that she can no longer use her powers on humans. Holy shit. So it definitely left some psychological damage on her. It is insane, and it's, like, the first, like, legitimately, like, weird thing that happened. Like, the other ones are all based on, like, powers and stuff, but that's the first thing that really is, like, wait, what the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. Because before that, the only real mystery that they solve is the one with the little girl. The little girl who was a creation of someone else's ability, and and the person who created her was going through some type of uh, crisis of, is she a real person or not? Right, because, like, she was going to have a child, but it, like, dies in the womb, and so through her power or whatever, is able to create an equivalent child. And, like, has this whole crisis of, is this my real child or not? And having to deal with that and this, what comes out as abuse. And, like, it's just so... Weird. Yeah, like, it it seems like it's gonna be... Like, when I went into it, I was thinking it was gonna be a lot more, like, low, you know, low-level mystery stuff. Just, like, weird stuff happening around and trying to figure out who's doing these powers and what. But it's, like, really dark, actually. (laughs) Yeah, it- okay, so do you, do you wanna- do you want me to continue on from yeah, the end of that episode? Yeah, go on. Okay, so the next episode is a flashback. Oh. Yep, it's uh, it takes place earlier in the year, and it follows uh, Kay and Haruki's first, uh, first case that they solve with a weird ability, and it's a one-episode thing, and basically they solve the, the mystery of this girl who disappeared- and it turns out she used her own ability to uh, to place herself in a marble because she was worried about not living up to the standards that she set for herself. And Kay basically kind of talks it out with her and figures out why she actually used her ability because in Sagrada, abilities can't be used unless you want to use them. Mm-hmm. So she, he tries to figure out like why he why she used that ability in the first place. And after figuring that out resets and finds the girl before she used her ability and says his bit and then she cries <laughs> and then it doesn't happen okay yeah yeah I, th- I think the entire episode was to establish the concept that abilities can't be used unless you want 
to use them. Mm-hmm. So the next episode happens, and we meet a couple of interesting characters. Uh, one of them is an old man whose ability is to record like a time and place in a photograph. And by tearing the photograph apart, you can go back to the time that was saved in that photograph for 10 minutes. And that's a really cool power, I think. Yeah, I think the thing about this is, like, they build a lot of cool powers and characters who could use them, and then just, like, I mean, up to where I was, it's, like, it's kind of wasted potential. Like, I I just don't, I'm not involved in the characters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> so continue. Yeah, so... His ability is stolen or sealed away by another character that uh, that Kay knows, call, whose uh, name is Oka Eri, whose name can be literally pronounced as Okairi. Welcome home. <laughs> and like she apparently in her past was like going through issues with her dad, and Kay's like, "Hey, if your dad's giving you problems, maybe you should blackmail him." <laughs> and and she does, and she changes her last name to uh, to her mother's last name, and so she becomes uh, Oka, Oka Eri, because it sounds friendlier. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, she looks up to Kay, and she feels like Kay isn't, hasn't been as wicked as he used to be. And so she wants to bring back the old Kay. <laughs> so she's antagonizing him with this. And her ability, as is discovered later on, is... Um, she has the ability to alter memories. Uh, she can either implant a memory or take a memory away, and she can seal abilities by taking away the memory of how to use them. And I think that's really cool. But she can only alter one memory at a time. So, uh, also, uh, there's a witch. She doesn't have a name. She is just known as a witch. And she has the power to see the future. And she is incredibly important to, like, the the Bureau, who is the organization in Sagrada that manages all of the abilities throughout all of the town. And, and Kay is contacted by the witch, because the witch wants to ha- wants to, uh, to talk to him for a bit. And I, I'm just gonna skip ahead, but... The, there is a there was a conspiracy. Kay was brought to the town for a conspiracy for several years later t- so that the witch could escape the clutches of the bureau so she could see her boyfriend for the one week she had before she died. What the fuck? Yup. Yup. And uh <laughs> and the, her boyfriend was the uh the guy whose power is to preserve time in photos and one and he gets a photo and one of the things the uh, the witch in the photo says, another me from another photo must have sent you here. Something what? like that. What? <laughs> I know. It's completely ridiculous. But uh, the witch planned to use Oka Eri to free herself forcefully, even though it would bring sorrow for Kay. But Kay manages to use uh, the the photo guy's power to uh, to help free the witch. Okay. And and stop Eri and um. So, do you remember Soma, the girl who died in the first two episodes? Yes. As it turns out, she also has the ability to see the future. And she is the witch's successor. But how can that be? She's dead. Well, as it turns out, Kay's goal from Soma from uh, Soma's death was to find people with, a, with the right combination of abilities so he could bring Soma back from the dead. Right. <laughs> 
I think they talked about that, yeah. Yeah. So, one of the rewards for freeing the witch is a picture with Soma. And that's not resolved next episode. Instead, we get a flashback to... <laughs> we get a flashback to, uh... To right after, uh, Soma's death. And... Basically, it kind of goes through the whole drama between uh, Kay and Haruki about how Kay thinks that Soma died because Haruki reset somehow, and Haruki realizes that she can't use the reset ability because she decided to have Kay be in charge of that ability, and she can't use it anymore, and she's worried about being hated by Kay. So it shows that Haruki is slowly but surely growing feelings. And that's- a. That's a thing, too, because in the first couple episodes, it's the abuse of the reset power that ultimately leads to um, Kay thinking that, like, Soma, Soma's death is his fault. Because he resets yeah. for some frivolous thing like kissing, uh, kissing Haruki or Haruki. something. Yeah, and it was like, wow, this is weird. Yep. I wanted to remember this. I'm going to reset. Okay, bye. And then, oops, uh, someone died in the same day and I can't reset anymore. Yeah. And uh, th this episode is also the episode where a person who has become a more relevant character uh, finds Kay on a bridge thinking that he's going to kill himself and offers him a Kit Kat bar to <laughs> keep him from killing himself. I mean, I would I would stay alive for a Kit Kat. So, <laughs> yeah, it's it's something. But the next episode, uh, they successfully managed to revive Soma. And it's really cool because it's all these powers coming together and Kay manages to accomplish his goal. And remember that thing from the beginning where Soma's like, well, which one of the three of us is an android? Is she really an android? Is Soma an android? The answer Kay gives is that Kay is that Soma is an android, but not because she is actually an android, but because she can see the future, she is only acting to her own preordained script. Mmm, okay. Well, okay, I can see that. That's actually smarter than I thought it would go for. Yeah, it's it all came together for that, and I was like, wow, this show is actually kind of good. <laughs> and <laughs> So what's the MacGuffin? Nothing! So it is a MacGuffin. The MacGuffin is in fact a MacGuffin. Fuck this. I'm out. Yes. yes. This show's it's bad again. It's actually a MacGuffin. Soma spread the rumor of the MacGuffin so that... Kay would do all of the things that he did and bring her back from the dead. Fuck off. <laughs> it fucking rules. <laughs> but yeah. And then they get into like a bit of a philosophical debate of, oh, is this the real, is the Soma from the picture still the real Soma, even though it's only a few days from before she killed herself? Is she, a, is she Soma or is she a being that has all of Soma's memories and all that and... Mm -hmm. It goes back to the other philosophical nonsense from before, and it was really cool how they brought all that back, and I still kind of like the show because of it. And then they did a Slice of Life episode about Haruki being friends with the girl who can see through the eyes of cats when she's asleep. Oh yeah, she's cool. Yeah, she was cool. But, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, uh, at, at this point, um, Kay is trying to find a way to hide Soma from the Bureau, because she, he doesn't want to subject Soma to the life that the witch had of being shut away from everybody, because she has the power to see the future. Okay. And it turns out that while he's trying to discover this, he finds out about the existence of the script. And the script is an even more accurate representation of the future than what either the witch or Soma could see. 
And there's this guy whose ability is to write the script, and even Kay's reset nonsense is written down in the script. Oh my god. And this is a problem for the Bureau, because Kay looked at pages of the script, and his ability is to remember things. <laughs> it's so... And that's basically where it's, like, ending off. Like, Soma is explore Like, they're exploring this dream world where this person's power is to take people into a dream world where everything is the same except it's mirrored. And he wants to try and use that to, to keep Soma out of the Bureau's hands, but he finds out about the existence of the script. And it's... I have no idea what direction this show is going in, and I I just want to see what ridiculous bullshit Kay is going to pull off because he's a huge ass. And it seems really unfortunate because, like, all of this could be turned into something kind of cool, but it feels like the the direction and the writing and everything ends up kind of being amateurish in a way that detracts from the ability for this story to to be interesting or genuinely like philosophical and interesting it's it's just so bizarrely stiff and it ah uh, it's such a baffling show yeah it seems like it <laughs> <laughs> i i just can't stop watching this thing but I'm, I'm sure by next season when we check back in we'll know how your full feelings on the show are <laughs> yeah i i think i'm gonna enjoy it if it keeps being completely ridiculous mm-hmm <laughs> Fantastic. Alright, so, sorry to ask you to talk again, but tell me about Grimoire Zero. Okay, this this will be easier to explain, because I actually know why I like this. So, <laughs> Grimoire of Zero is about a witch named Zero, and a mercenary, and he, everybody just calls him mercenary, because names are powerful, and you don't want to give your real name to a witch. And it's about these two going on a search for the Grimoire of Zero. The, the titular one. Okay. And the deal in, the, in this world is that there's two things. First, uh, magic exists, uh, and people that can use magic are called witches. But ever since the Grimoire of Zero was brought into this small kingdom of Wenius, magic is a lot simpler to cast. Everybody can start using magic, and people who can cast from this Grimoire are called sorcerers. The other thing is that uh, beast fallen exist. They're they're basically animal people, like actual animal people. Like the mercenary is a tiger man. There is a wolf man later on who is a major character, and these people, along with the witches, are feared by the general populace. But uh, beast fallen, because they are hunted by witches, because their blood is valuable for magic rituals, uh, they hunt witches as well. And it's an unlikely relate friendship between the mercenary and Zero. And the plot takes a bit for it to kick in but it's basically Mercenary and Zero's adventures in the Kingdom of Wenius, and I really like it. The The banter between Zero and Mercenary is really good, and they, genu and they genuinely feel like good friends, and uh, it eventually goes someplace. Uh, the plot basically comes to the fact that Zero is hunting for the Grimoire of Zero that she wrote. She's the origin of all of the of, uh, sorcery, and She's looking for the man who goes by the name of him, who killed everyone in the place where Zero lived and stole the Grimoire of Zero to do something with it. And they find out that he founded a group called the Sorcerers of Zero, who are who were basically trying to spread magic through the kingdom, but but like some of the people of the group became evil. 
and they formed rogue witches, and then there's also official uh, people who can use the Grimoire of Zero who are hunting both of these that are led by uh, Zero's old comrade named Thirteen. And Zero and the Mercenary are eventually joined by a young witch named Albus, and he's also a pretty good character, but it's basically about these three characters trying to unravel the mystery behind the Grimoire of Zero, and just... It's not a particularly, like, complex show. It's just really well done. It's a, it's just a simple fantasy anime, but just really good. Okay, yeah, I mean, when I, when I first looked at it, I think the, the best I had hoped for is it for it to be a competent fantasy thing. And it seems like it accomplished that. It definitely did. It, it goes into, like, the complexities of the responsibility of spreading magic throughout the kingdom and how it was spread incorrectly because they didn't really monitor, like, who got this magic. And it goes through some surprising stuff, I guess. I don't know. It, I kind of don't want to talk about the plot too much because it most of the plot's, like, in the back half of the show, really. Okay, and do you think it, like, concludes? Do you feel like, since this is sort of like a story-based thing, does 12 episodes give it enough time to finish, like, an arc or something? It did. It finished with a fairly satisfactory ending. The The confrontation with 13 was a little bit weak, in my opinion, but it finished in an, in a very respectable manner, and it basically ended with a, all the problems in Wenius have been solved, but the adventure for Zero and the Mercenary continues. It, it was a nice open-ended ending. Okay, well, that's cool. That I mean, that's always good to hear with stuff like this, because I've definitely run into things where, like, the plot kicks in episode, at the last episode of the season, and it's just like, well... Nah, I, I like the show a lot, and I definitely recommend it if you're just looking for, like, a good old fantasy anime with non-traditional protagonists. Okay. I remember seeing, uh, maybe a little bit of, uh, controversy once the, uh, once one of the episodes came out and the official subs made an arrow to the knee joke. <laughs> that was in the original novel. Yeah, no, I, no, I was gonna bring that up. I think it's really funny because apparently that is a meme bigger than it is here or was here. Like, apparently that's, like, some, some like, big shit over in Japan, and so they're like, oh, I'm gonna put in an arrow to the knee. <laughs> it's like, cool. Beams are worldwide, and it's great. It's so messed up. Because usually, like, you feel like Japanese memes are, like, t 2chan sort of stuff, but that's one that, like, carries over, you know, cultural boundaries in a way that's sort of fascinating and also terrifying. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> That's great, though. I mean, it's cool that it turned into something concrete and kind of good. Like, it, I think, you know, with fantasy like this, where it is not totally, but like fairly grounded in a lot of traditional fantasy tropes, there is the possibility of not not doing enough to change, you know, not doing enough to differentiate yourself. But it seems like this show did a pretty good job of building a unique world. Yeah, and it's not even, like, the whole world. It's just one tiny little kingdom in the whatever-size world this actually is. It's, like, it took me until the last couple of episodes to realize, oh, hey, the the area of this world that we're seeing is actually really small, so there's a lot of potential for other adventures to go on in there. Mm, okay, cool. And so, next up, uh, our last continuing show, uh, where both of us are watching it, is Soccer Quest. 
So Soccer Quest is the is the story of a character named Yoshino who just finished college and is looking for a job in the big city in Tokyo and can't find one. She comes from sort of a rural town and really doesn't want to live there. She wants to be in the big city where everything's happening. This is kind of uh, during the, the big bubble economy. Everyone's getting jobs. Everything's kind of expanding. But she can't find a position to get her foot in. And due to a miscommunication, she ends up becoming the queen of this sort of rural mini-nation. And her job now is to sort of try to help revitalize the tourism to this area and try to rebuild this rural community that's been slowly dying due to everyone wanting to move to Tokyo and kind of take part in this big hustling uh, economy. So, I, I, again, I've, I've talked about this before. It, it comes off of the, the heels of the other working anime that PA Works has done. And this one is not quite as, I feel, it's not quite as like realistic or as like grounded in sort of the tourism stuff that they do as something like Shirabako was with how anime is created. But it, it gives enough of sort of a believable setup that is really just background for developing the the characters who are in charge of this the f- the five main girls who make up the tourism board yeah it's it's grounded in a reality in a different way more more character based than setting based the important part is the the end result of what they're trying to do with this tourism thing and the way that these characters develop out of it so we're up to episode 13 which is i think a pretty natural place for the story to end like sort of the big first half has ended and we're moving on to a second half. Um, and what's kind of cool, I think, about Sakura Quest is in a lot of stories, it would be about success after success after success, when in this case, it's really about how these characters learn from their successive failures, it's it's a mix. Sometimes they succeed and sometimes they fail, and sometimes they succeed in unexpected ways. Yeah, but it seems like, especially with like the last two episode arc, it's a it's ultimately a failure, and in yeah. like a big way. Yeah, it's it's a big enough downer to get Yoshino to consider leaving town again. Right, and also like a a realization of like, are we going about this the right way? So like. Their, their tourism efforts are things like, you know, holding these big events or trying to develop, like, a unique food for the area that would get people interested in coming. And those, like, have varying degrees of success. Really, the best one was they did, a, like, a cooking competition for the area in order to create this signature dish. Because everyone loves free food. So everyone shows up for free food, and there's a, it's, a, it's a great time, and it is a success for these characters. and. But with this last arc, they're, like, getting on TV, they're trying to do this whole thing, they get this partnership with this big upcoming band to do a concert, and it kind of backfires on them because most of the people come for the concert and leave and don't really have any interest in coming back, and the TV program really spins the uh, the whole setup and doesn't ultimately help with tourism or anything, it's, it's really just kind of a celebration of how cool the TV studio is and how cool that band is. Yeah, which uh, which makes the guy who actually, you know, wanted, suggested this whole thing pretty angry. Right, because there is someone working at the TV who also wants to help, 
revitalize the city, and he realizes that his effort is kind of wasted on this particular case because they're focusing on all the wrong parts of this area. Yeah. But the 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 cast is really what's important. I th- I think the cast is good and varied in in a really strong way. Like everyone has their sort of like um their strengths and weaknesses and they bounce off of each other really well. Yeah, the the main five are all really pretty good relatable characters and I I'm fond of all of them. Yeah, so Yoshino, the main character is like she just really doesn't want to be normal. She wants to stand out. She wants to do something different. And she doesn't like the rural area just because that's what she grew up with. Meanwhile, we have Shiori, who has grown up in this particular rural town all her life and loves it and just wants it to be, you know, bustling like it used to be and to draw people into the charm of this area. We have Ririko, who also lives here, and uh, she's weird. I guess is like the one word descriptor for her. She's really into um, cryptids and sort of like exploration of the supernatural. And she's had trouble fitting in because she's not a normal girl. Right. She doesn't have as much interest in sort of the things that they're expected to, like the culture and history of the area. She's a lot more interested in like the Mothman. She loves the Mothman. Which I mean, who isn't? (laughs) Who isn't into the Mothman? He's great. Friend of all children. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have, like, Sanae, who used to work in the big city and moves out here because she works in web development, and she kind of just does- she doesn't seem to like the atmosphere of the big city. Yeah, she got burned out pretty hard, and she moved back to the country to try and reconsider what she wants to do. And she doesn't even really like the country, she hates bugs, like, that's her thing, is, like, constantly, it's like, oh, I love nature, and then a bug shows up and she freaks out. Yep. And then we have the last one who is uh, Maki, and Maki was like a like a C-tier actor, still getting jobs, but not like big ones, who kind of finds herself dissatisfied with her position and ultimately moves back to reconsider what she's doing. Yeah, every, everybody's at that kind of transitional stage in their lives. Yeah, everyone's trying to figure out their role and where they fit in. And they come from all these different perspectives, because a lot of them come from rural areas or have always lived in rural areas. And it's sort of how their relationship with these places changes going through. Yeah. It's, uh, I think it's very well done, because, like, it, like, the, minus, like, maybe one of the, the mini arcs, but, like, when we learn about Ririko's insecurities and the fact that she feels out of place in this place, even though she's lived there all her life, and kind of trying to d- to discover her her position in this whole thing. Like, that's really well done because it plays into a lot of, like, social anxiety and isolationist sort of themes that are dealt with in a way that doesn't just feel like, oh, she's magically cured of feeling weird and out of place, but, like, just finding ways to fit in instead. She's happy to be with the... Uh, I forget the TV na- show's stupid name for them, but it... The- the the tourism gals or something like that. Something gals. Something stupid. But she's happy to fit in there. She's happy that she's accepted there where she is. Yeah, and like, we have uh, Shiori, who's just like, who doesn't want to lose anything. Like, everything in this town is special to her in some way. And so when like a movie studio comes through to use the area and they want to burn down a building for this dramatic shot, she's really troubled by it because she has all these different memories that are attached to it 
and she and it's about sort of being able to let these physical things go because your memory still exists of them and it's still important to you. Yeah, she had a nice character moment when it wasn't even her arc. Yeah, and they've all had sort of these all, they've all had these minor arcs for now, which I'm sure are going to be built up as we go forward. But we've all hit the point where they've sort of found their place and what their role is and they're figuring out what they're going to do um with the tourism now that they've sort of had this big failure. Yeah. Like they they've hit the point where it's like, okay, we need to really rethink what we're doing. Yeah, because what they've been doing while it's been good for business, it hasn't actually gotten people to visit the town or act or move there or whatnot. And this is a conflict they've had with the people who are there too, like in the the merchant board, who are like, you guys are doing all these insane things, these, you know, these very expensive sort of weird stuff, and it's not working out for us. I think it's also be the other conflict being that some of the people of the town don't want things to go to become bustling or busy and whatnot and trying to reconcile with those people. Right. It's it's a lot about people who don't want change and the change that is sort of required in order to, you know, vitalize that area and still make it so they can live the way that they do. Yeah. Because, like, they meet those they meet those people who do the, the wood carving and one of them is not willing to sacrifice at all. He only wants to make this one particular type of wood carving, which is fine, but, you know, is, isn't the business that's going to bring in more people and not going to bring in money in the same way. Yeah, and I, I kind of like the way that that gets resolved with starting that whole um, exhibit in the train station. Yeah, they, they do a lot of cool stuff. Like, there are some small successes, and it's very cool, and it does a lot for the characters. I think they have a good cast. Even though it's very large, you can keep everyone separate, and for the most part, they've been interesting. Yeah, even even like the uh, the side characters have some personality. Yeah, um, and also we have the most important um, secondary character, Sandal. I thought you were going to try and pronounce his real name. Nope, not going to try. Not even a little bit. But we have Sandal, and uh, Sandal is. He is the child of someone from this rural town and a foreigner, and he is kind of there as, like, a voice of reason, but, like, in a, what's the, like, in a quirky way. He's, like, quirky, but he always has the best intentions, and he's always trying to do his own way of, like, drawing people in and having fun. Yeah, he's, he's a really good guy. Yeah, and uh, he is voiced by an English first language person. I believe he is, um, I believe he's Indian. Huh. Yeah, it's it's a weird sort of thing, but it's but it plays into his character really well, which is that he is ultimately a foreigner. He is someone who, you know, he who doesn't quite belong in the same way, but he's finding his own, you know, stomping ground in this place that belongs to, you know, his family and that he has this history for through his uh, ancestor. So, I mean, it's it's interesting. They they have a lot of characters here that all build to their own dynamic within the story, even if it's super minor. Yeah, it's it's one of the things I like about the show a lot. Yeah, I think the only thing I've really had an issue with was the couple episode bit where everyone thought Shiori was um was getting into the the cook who came back, the chef. Oh yeah, that was a weird little plot. 
Because it's just like, it's one of those things where like, it's obviously not anything that's going to happen. And it's a misunderstanding between the characters that like, none of us are fooled by. So it's just like frustrating to see how much attention that got. Though it concludes in a nice enough way with a Shiori's sister uh, and him realizing that they made a mistake like back in high school and kind of rekindling a little bit of romance from back then. Yeah, that was cute. And I like how uh, Bear Chef uh, came back during the uh, the later episodes as uh, a supporter of theirs. Yeah, so- Soccer Quest has surprised me in a number of ways, just because it, it's not like, like a Shirabako, but it carves out its own distinct identity. And that opening song is really good. It's really catchy. Like, we haven't talked a lot about opening songs and stuff, but like I think Soccer Quest has a really good one that plays with the visuals really well and gets you excited. Because it does kind of a blend of like, uh, like more um, acoustic sort of instruments and you know like electronic pop, uh, like production. Yeah, it's probably my second favorite OP of uh, of the season. Yeah, it's 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 a cool show overall, and I think it, it's done a good job with this first half really developing to get to the point where like they realize that they need to do something different with their setup. And I'm interested to see what ends up happening out of that for the next 12 episodes. Same here. And so uh, next up is a show that I'm surprised. I'm not surprised I liked it, but I'm surprised how much I ended up liking it, which is uh, Sukigakure. And this is a romance story, but instead of being like the, the typical sort of high school stuff, it takes it one step down and puts it in middle school. So... It's a it's a very different character dynamic. All of these characters are at a very like kind of transitionary point of their lives with puberty and all that, and they're even more awkward and trying to figure out who they are than than like characters in high school even are. So it focuses on these two characters, um, Akane and Kotaro, and Akane is like. She's like the the head of her track team at school, but she has this incredible anxiety when it comes to performance and when it comes to talking to new people. And so there's this balance there. And then we have Kotaro, who is pretty isolated. And his thing is that he eventually wants to become a great writer and neither of his parents or well, his mother in particular doesn't like support him. So he's like writing behind her back and trying to do all this stuff. And... Just through happenstance, Kotaro and Akane end up meeting and they immediately hit it off. And like in awkward middle school style fashion, they like kind of stumble into this romance through like, and in particular, they they text through Vine or not Vine, uh, Line, right? The other one. Good. Yeah. And so it's like, it's this weird sort of product placement, but I think it does play into sort of the modernization of what you can do with romance stories because... They're doing a lot of texting. They're sending these dumb stickers to each other to kind of, like, make each other laugh. Like, it's it's a very different style of... And, and like, text in and of itself is, like, a very different way, almost a little um, divorced from your own true feelings when you send text to each other and stuff, because you don't have to say it out loud. It's a very different thing. And the the focus on a lot of the story is these these very subtle moments, like, it's one of those shows where they 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 start going to very fluid animation for important things, like when um, 
when Kotaro, who is also part of like the the people who work at the festival around this town, he's doing like a dance for them. Like they animate that very well, like this, you know, this performance. And every time like these two characters like awkwardly grasp to hold hands and stand up in different ways and like you know, act awkward around each other. Like there's a lot of fluidity to the motion that makes it feel more genuine. Like all of it feels like they would have taken this straight from the way that middle school kids act, which I think is very important and very cool is like, it gives this, the sense of realism to all of it and how awkward they feel. And like, even some of the bad emotions that come along with it, like when they get jealous that other people confess to them, or, you know, they're dealing with these, you know, these emotions that they're not used to and just, like, don't know how to handle it. It's a very well-done romance story, which, I mean, that's hard. Not everyone's into romance, but it's it, it, it executes what it does very well. And even early on when uh, they're using, like, the, the CG for the background characters, like, this CG's not bad. Like, they do a very good job of kind of blending it into the background when they don't have to move. And it's unfortunate that as they go forward, they ran into a lot of production issues with like delivering episodes late and stuff and having to use more of the 3D CG. But like, there is also like a a sense that they are starting to develop CG that with the right context can fit in seamlessly with the 2D animation. Um, I really liked Suki Gakure. It also does a great thing where all of the side characters who you kind of get introduced to just because they belong to the friend circles have like these little shorts at the end where they just like have an experience either thinking about these other people or like on a really bad date or something like just gives this little more characterization to all of them in like these interesting fun little ways that doesn't pull away from the the larger romance between Akane and Kotaro because they don't do it in the middle of an episode. Um, it's, it's a very, it ends in sort of like the, the way you'd expect a story like this, where it's very like sugary sweet and sort of like idealistic. But I think that fits with the tone of the whole thing, because the tone of the whole thing is just how much these emotions affect you and how much they change you. And like, it's, it's just the best possible outcome of that. And it's, it's very nice. It's a, it's a very heartwarming series about how troublesome and awkward it can be to fall in love. And it's, it's, it's charming. It sounds charming from what you've told me. It's, uh, it's, it's good. I, I'm really happy that Suki Gakure happened because it is like a, it is a tired story through a different lens because I feel like the age of these characters helps to develop like different dynamics between them than just the, the typical high school romance. And so coming off of that, we have our, uh, we have our, probably it's going to be a lightning round of dropped shows. Uh, These next five are shows that one of us have dropped. And so we'll be going over sort of the basic idea and maybe why we didn't stick with them. So you're up first. All right. So uh, one of the shows that I dropped was Laughing Salesman New, which is supposed to be about this, uh, this guy who basically goes around offering these amazing things to people, but doing these things, using these things too much, will backfire, sort of like a Faustian deal or whatnot. And I thought, well, when going into it, thought that it would be kind of interesting, and 
and that the people who would get these things would be, like, people who deserve them. But no, it's just a wizard going around being an asshole to people. And not <laughs> even in, like, an interesting way. For I, I, got, I made it halfway through the second episode before I realized, eh, this isn't really entertaining. But there is one good thing I have to say about this show, and that is the OP is really, really good. Yeah, I think no matter what I heard about Laughing Salesman is that, man, that OP is good. Yeah, it's, it's really good, it's really catchy, it's got great visuals. It's something that you should give a listen to if you can find it, but you probably will need to look on Daily Motion for it, not YouTube. Or something like that, yeah. But it seems like it, it messes with the Faustian formula of not giving you bad characters to hate when they get, you know, defeated by their greed. Yeah, it, they, they just seem like normal people that just a wizard comes up and tricks because he's a wizard and wizards don't know right from wrong. Yeah, which I think that's the unfortunate part is like you, you want to feel like these characters deserve their comeuppance, but like they're just offered something great. And as a normal person, you're like, oh, cool. Instead of like, oh, I'm going to abuse this, and suddenly they're, like, affected for it. Yeah, it it just wasn't that interesting to watch either. Hmm, that's unfortunate. Like, just not very striking visuals, or... Yeah, it looks more like Osamatsu. Like, I thought that the main character was supposed to look really weird and out of place, but he looks like he fits in with the world just fine. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that is a little weird. Yeah. Then I watched Kabuki Boo, which is uh, a cute boys do cute things series about uh, people who are really into the art of Kabuki. And I was kind of hoping that that was going to be the focus of it is like exploring this this art form distinctly Japanese that like doesn't carry over to to like the US very well and be able to see it through this different lens, which it kind of does. There's a lot of talking about the history of Kabuki, but like. Ultimately, the issue is that the cute boys doing cute things I didn't feel were very interesting. Like, they didn't, they, they were kind of tropey. Like, the, the one big exciting thing is like breaking these, these boundaries of like, oh, well, Kabuki's only for boys and like st- introducing a female character who can perform with them because, you know, there's this whole history to Kabuki where, uh, originally women would do it and women would play the roles of men and stuff like that. Like, there's a cool bit there, but all the characters otherwise are very, like, one note and kind of whatever, in a way that really detracted from my interest in the other subject matter. Aw, oh, dang. But, like, I think there's something there, but it's just it just wasn't for me. And then we have, uh, I dropped another one, and that was uh, Anonymous Noise. And Anonymous Noise is maybe the most shoujo thing I've ever seen, uh, ever. Anonymous Noise is a, a, a romance story based around music, and it's, it's about a girl who meets a boy in grade school, and they fall in love and they do music stuff, and then the boy has to move away. So uh, in the middle of kind of moping about it, the girl meets another boy who's also into music, and they do, and they kind of fall in love, and then he has to move as well. And by the time that they're all in high school, they end up going to the same high school, and she meets up with them, and, like, they've given up music, but she's there to try to draw them back in, and and do all this stuff, and it's a love triangle, and, like, there are so many shoujo tropes shoved into it in such a short time span. I dropped it, like, episode two. It was just absurd how much ground they broke as far as, like, 
hitting all of these shoujo beats. Um, and like, it is cool because they, they're doing original music for it and it's all like post punk and kind of like not what you'd typically expect out of it. It's very cool. But then like, I, I find it really hard to watch because of a lot of secondhand embarrassment stuff of just like these absurd things that these characters are doing and acting upon. And it was just like really hard to watch. And I hear that it doesn't get much better. <laughs> oh, well. Oh, well. They can't all be winners. And speaking of not being winners, you almost forgot about this one when you were sending me your list of shows you had watched. Tell me I, about it. I actually did. It is called Adam the Beginning, and it is supposed to be a prequel to Astro Boy, which is one of the most well-known animes. And uh, it's about uh, the basically Astro Boy's prototype, who maybe will be called Adam. I don't know. I didn't get to that. I didn't get far enough for him to be named Adam. But, uh, it was basically very episodic adventures of the the two guys that made Adam, and the characters didn't really develop. It was all very sort of static, and it didn't really feel like the plot, the, and it didn't really feel like the plot was really going anywhere, and it just wasn't getting very interesting. I don't know. Mm. I don't really have much to say about it. The opening animation was really good, but I I wish I could have finished it, but it just it didn't hold my interest. Yeah, that's unfortunate, because I, I mean, like, the, the, the robot design that they use for Adam or whatever, the sort of, like, half-finished one, is kind of cool. But yeah, like, other, other opinions I've heard is, like, the characterization's kind of whatever, and the plot takes a long time to even start, so... Eh. Eh. It's it's just another on the pile of like kind of okay uh attempts to to revitalize like a a series uh that uh Tezuka's touched cuz like there was Young Blackjack last season too. Oh yeah, I remember that not being so good either. Yeah. And then the last one uh I let's save best for last. Uh, I dropped Boruto. I tried watch Oh my god. I tried watching Boruto. Uh, Boruto, I mean, by by not having to tie itself into Naruto as hard was a real benefit because you could you could separate it from sort of the absurdity of the plot as it went forward. You could separate it from the characters and really build your own thing about um, sort of the, the post-war world of ninjas and how they find their place in society and all that. But then it it cold opens with someone who has destroyed the entire Hidden Leaf Village and Boruto has to fight them to stop them, and he also he has a new uh, eyeball power that wasn't in the first series. And it's just like, it immediately starts off by building this huge overarching narrative where what I wanted was an episodic story. Oh no. Yeah, and all the characters are also, they, they feel like, this, it feels like they're trying too hard to tie these characters to like their parents and build the tropes based off of these pre-existing characters, like, they don't give them the space to be their own person, despite the main plot being how much Boruto wants to come out of the shadow of his father and be respected for what he's done beside, instead of what family he comes from. Like, e everything about it just feels like it's trying to be Naruto again. But now with daddy issues. Yeah, which, like, I, man, I don't know. And it's, it just wasn't, like, the characters didn't feel as good, like, 
I don't know. I I felt pretty off of it, like, you know, halfway through the season. It's just like, I, I wasn't interested in seeing more of it. And there was a potential there, but they just missed it. Like, the best episode ended up being one that, like, ties into 0% of any of the plot stuff they're building up, which is, like, Boruto and Serata want the same sandwich for lunch, and there's only one left, so they have this extreme obstacle course throughout the school to figure out who gets to get the sandwich. Like, it's it's a great dumb thing, and there's a whole bit where, like, they, they use their powers to do these absurd, like, racing things, and it's great. There's... There's charm there, but, like, they they keep falling back on the Naruto formula that I think they should have tried to stay farther away from, at least early on. Mm. It's unfortunate. Yeah. But this next one is one you had dropped, and due to uh, reactions to, to the ending, uh, you picked back up. So why don't you tell me about Kato, the right answer? Alright, so Kato, the right answer. Uh, it, the premise is pretty, well, not simple, but it's interesting. So, a plane is taking off in an airport one day in Japan, and then out of nowhere, a giant cube appears and engulfs the plane. And, as it turns out, on the plane is one of Japan's top negotiators, a man named uh, Kojiro Shindo. And inside of this cube, he meets Yahakui Zashunia. <laughs> And no one will ever say his name as anything but that. It is always Yahakui Zashunia. <laughs> so they say his full name each time. Great. Yes, they do. And <laughs> he is a being from outside of the universe, the Antistropic. And he wants to help humanity evolve. And it's basically uh, Shindo serving as a medium between... Medium? Mediator between Yahakui Zashunia and the rest of Japan. And it seems like it's going to be a really interesting sci-fi story about humans uh, gaining this new technology and slowly figuring out how, like, to use this technology. And there's some, like, really interesting conflict. Like, the first thing that, that Yahakui Zashunina uh, gives Japan is infinite energy. And... And there's, like, a good couple of episodes figuring out, like, how do we distribute this infinite energy to people? And it, and the solution is that Yaha- that, uh, Yahakui Zashunia, um, <laughs> gives is that they can create their own devices that provide infinite energy. Not everybody can, but everybody will be able to, and this is the way that they can distribute infinite energy throughout the world, and that's, like, a really interesting spin on it all, instead of humanity going, oh, no, we can't use this, we have to get, we have to seal away the infinite energy because it's too dangerous, and it's really interesting, and then the plot goes completely off the rails at the end of episode 9 in what is the most out-of-left-field thing I have ever seen since Samurai Flamenco. Yeah, it sounds like it, it really... Like, from what I hear, like, no matter your opinion on it, it really betrays the first nine episodes and what they're building up as the themes. Yeah, so, uh, you do you want me to talk about it? Because I kind of do. Um, uh, okay. So, uh, yeah, there's going to be spoilers here for Kato the Right Answer in a bigger way than maybe we've spoiled other things. So, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, after... Yahakui Zashunina introduces a new anti-stropic device. He, uh, Shindo meets with the representative of Japan, whose name is, uh, her name is Soraka, and she basically convinces that 
maybe humans don't need all this fancy technology because they're all special enough on their own that that they don't need to be a part of the antistropic because this universe is, you know, it's pretty great. They Humans are pretty great, and they don't need to be uh, antistropic beings. And so Shindo decides to meet with Yahakuiza Shunina and ask him, hey, maybe we don't need anything else. But then Yahakuiza Shunina drops the plot on him, which is that the antistropic beings created the universe. Not just one universe, many different universes. <laughs> because they want information. And this universe in particular has the most information possible because humanity produces more information than they would have expected. Okay. Uh, and the thing that Yahakuiza Shunina wanted to give was basically the remote control for the universe. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Which is, like, it let them uh, manipulate people's perception of time and such. And Yahakuiza Shunina reveals his goal, which is to get humanity to ascend to the antistropic because he wants to interact with them on the antistropic level to get more information, and also that he is a 37th dimensional being. Oh my god. And Shindo's like, uh, <laughs> and Yahakuiza Shunina is basic, basically goes, well, I guess I told you too early about it. Now I'm going to have to kill you and replace you with a copy of the you I made before I told you all of this. <laughs> what? Yup. And he does it by creating a giant energy sword from his hand. And uh, after this point, Sarada's ring breaks. And, surprise, she's a magical girl and also an antistropic being. She was the one who originally created the universe, and she gave up her antistropic powers to live among humanity. And, uh, then the next episode opens up with the creation of the universe. No big deal. And, um, then Yahakuiza Shunina and Soraka have an antistropic battle, which is completely ridiculous and stupid, and... Shindo takes a uh, a blow meant for him, and the two of them escape into an isolated space while Yahakuiza Shunina begins distributing the uh, the remote control of the universe, which is being disguised as a, a device that basically negates weight, that they can just move things without worrying about how heavy they weigh, but uh, with a uh, fake copy of Shindo to distribute them while uh, Sarat and Shinto formulate a strategy to defeat Yahakuiza Shunina because he because he's trying to uh, ascend humanity to the antistropic and not many people are going to survive. He doesn't care how many people die as long as just one person makes it there. And uh, the strategy that he comes up with is to have a suit of power armor under his suit that can negate his inertial barrier and give him a surprise, at which point he's open for negotiations. And this happens, except Shindo dies, and Yahakuiza Shunina puts him on an altar and prepares to engulf all of humanity in the Antistropic, and then a car rolls out onto the altar where Shindo is, and out of it comes Shindo's daughter! With Soraka! And the daughter is a 38th dimensional space wizard, and stro- and then spirit bombs y- Yahakuiza Shunina into oblivion. And that's how it ends. So when they said that this show gets really anime and really betrays itself, I didn't realize it was to this level? Yeah. 
Yeah. Because like the whole the whole point of this is they were doing 3D animation and it was supposed to blend sort of like real life drama and anime. And it sounds like they did that for about nine episodes and then three episodes are like, fuck it. It's an anime. <laughs> Let me tell you, I have not laughed harder at anything this season than Shindo's daughter coming up out of the car, telepathically showing an iPhone to Yahakui Zashida going and playing a video of Shindo going, hey, this is my daughter. That, that was hilarious. I mean, there is a group of people for which this ending is good and like, you know, funny and stuff. But I think that it's, it's harder to just, it's harder to justify that sort of thing when you realize that like, I think a lot of people came into it for like the political intrigue and like the kind of grounded, I mean, not grounded, but like more relatively like realistic plotting. Yeah, it's it's not a good anime, but it is a very enjoyable anime because it's rather ridiculous to how it got to this point. Right. From episode zero being Shindo negotiating the him uh, keeping a metalworking company going because they got to make a new type of fancy metal, and the show ending with, well, all, well now we have something to aspire to. We humans can, can eventually aspire to become as great as anti-stropic beings. <laughs> well, okay, great. I mean, yeah, there is a there is something there to be enjoyed, but I think it's unfortunate that it came in the in the wake of something that's so distinctly like not that. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely what a lot of people are reacting. I I enjoyed it for the spectacle, but it is not an anime I would call good. Right, like, that makes it a lot harder to recommend in any way. Like, if you like crazy anime stuff, we'll sit through these nine episodes of, like, political intrigue. If you like political intrigue stuff, uh, you're not going to be happy with the ending, like... Yeah. It's That it, it sounds messy, but, I mean, there is... There is an audience for that ending, and I hope <laughs> that they're happy. I am. <laughs> I mean, thank God. Oh. Uh. Boy. And so I I have one more um, continuing anime, and boy howdy is it Yu-Gi-Oh! Reigns. So Yu-Gi-Oh! Reigns is about uh, well, okay, so there, so uh, I think like five years before the plots kicks in, the Illuminati, known as the Knights of Hanoi, have hacked into the 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 VR database in order to capture. A piece of the the cyber world or cyverse where uh, all data is created from. Data packets are created from this part, and they break in and stop the security. But one rogue security AI is able to um, collapse and hide the location of the cyverse and uh, escape, though only as a single eye. Um, everything else is destroyed. And this is an anime about card games. We're getting to that. We're getting to that. So five years later, this VR space is like the 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 number one hotspot for upcoming duelists to duel in. And so you get to take on your own VR persona. It doesn't have to look like you or anything. And within there, the Knights of Hanoi, the Illuminati, are still trying to find the, the Cyverse, but so is the company that owns this VR database, Vrains. 
uh, and because they're they are slowly running out of accessible data packets. They're going to not be able to make data if this keeps up. They need to add more RAM. And so both of them are vying to find this the security robot. And uh, in the middle of it is Playmaker. Playmaker is like a is like a a legend in the VR world because he shows up only to fight the Knights of Hanoi and get them out because they're hackers. And he's like, oh, fuck these hackers. They're ruining the sanctity of the v- the Vrain's world. And also there are ties between some childhood trauma that Playmaker has uh, had and the Knights of Hanoi who caused it. So he's also trying to figure out what's going on with them and, you know, try to find his lost memories from this trauma. So Playmaker in the real world is a kid named Yusaku who goes to a high school and and there he pretends to not be a good duelist because he he hates dueling uh, just because of the connection that the Knights of Hanoi have to his broken past. But he does it in order to fight them off. And the story so far, we're only about seven episodes in, it started late, is that uh, Playmaker is meeting basically the main cast that are going to make up his groups of friends and the way that like both this, this company, um, SOL Technologies, and the Knights of Hanoi are using other people to try and get at Playmaker because Playmaker has captured the rogue, um, the rogue security AI from the beginning of the show, which means he now technically has access to the Cyverse, although he doesn't know about that. He doesn't know the, the importance of this AI. He just knows that it's a trump card for these two different groups. And like, that's dope as hell. <laughs> That's a cyberpunk anime, but they threw it in card games. Yeah, it's really good. And so, um, because he has this, he has the Cyverse in his dual disc. Now, every time he duels, um, a data storms go through the world, and the data storms are literally just like huge wind currents of data. And so, you can hoverboard on them and have sick speed duels. That's what they call them. They have speed duels on hoverboards with their dueling, which is like a more concise version of the duel rules where like, instead of having being able to summon like five monsters at a time, you're only set down to three. You start with fewer cards in your starting hand, like a whole bunch of different rule changes that benefit the speed of the duel and also the action. Um, just because it's kicking rad and has to be like twice as cool. Because it's cyberpunk. Right, of course. And so, like, I think the characters are all pretty good so far. Like, none of them have fallen into, like, obvious bad character Yu-Gi-Oh tropes. It it comes with a little caveat of, like, this feels close to how um, Yu-Gi-Oh! Zexel started, which is you give this character and a sidekick that if he loses a duel, he, you know, basically the, the world ends. And he can't possibly lose, so that's a little troubling right now is that it seems like it's setting that up, but they're setting up these side characters who are going to be his friends who are actually able to duel and are going seem to be uh, the kinds of characters that are going to help move the plot forward so it doesn't fall into the same issue of Zexel where like 90% of all duels are with the same main character, which is really like a boring thing. And he might also not just use the same card over and over to win like in Zexel. Like Vrain's 
has these tropes that like make me a little wary of how it's going to develop, but seems to be breaking them in in satisfying ways. And like, it is like all Yu-Gi-Oh is very absurd and right off the bat, like gets into this ridiculous premise of like cyber idol duelists and stuff like that. And like how popularity changes it. And, you know, again, he's fighting against the Illuminati and this big business that's being run by some other like pseudo Illuminati of people who are like, only show themselves through like chess pieces through VR. It's this, it's absolutely wild and also like really endearing in that way that Yu-Gi-Oh is. I'm really happy with it. Okay, so I'm guessing the members of the second Illuminati are named silly things like Bishop and Knight. Yes, mm-hmm, yep. Good! Because again, they're all chess pieces. They're only shown as chess pieces, so it's like Knight and Bishop and Rook. Good. Um, Good. And then the other Illuminati is is run by a man named Revolver, and they always say Revolver-sama, which is good. Revolver-ocelot! <laughs> and so Revolver is there, and he has like a big code-eating dragon as one of his cards. It's really good. Um, it's, it's a really good Yu-Gi-Oh! series so far. I'm excited to see it go further. And the, the theme seems to be about this guy who is very isolationist, wants to take care of everything by himself, slowly learning to not only enjoy dueling again, but also to allow himself to make these friends and these connections when he can't do it on his own. Which I think is a good a good thing to do with this, is like actually build up the relationships between these characters and make them important. That sounds good. Yeah, it's good. It's it's a it's a good one. And like they've they've sped it up even more where like duels take about like an episode or maybe an episode and a half, whereas they used to take like two episodes, and even back to original Yu-Gi-Oh, they'd take like five episodes. So they're they're really condensing the game down in a good way where like it's it's punchy and fast moving and it's a it's a real benefit. It sounds like one benefit of this could be the ability to develop characters more since they have more time to focus on the characters since the duels are over sooner. Yeah, and that's and that's that's what I'm hoping. There's a there's a good there's a good possibility there and I'm excited to see where Yu-Gi-Oh Reigns takes us in this cyberverse. And finally, our last show that we're going to talk about is one both of us watched and I it's maybe the most conflicted I've felt about a show in a while. This is Little Witch Academia. Yay! So, Little Witch Academia, the series based on, uh, or, you know, based off of the the original, like, Studio Trigger OVA and movie that came out of it. Um, it's about... It's kind of like Harry Potter, but fun. More fun. <laughs> yeah, well, like, Harry Potter was always deep into sort of, like, the story and stuff. It was a lot more serious. Little Witch Academia is a lot more lighthearted and a lot more about sort of how cool magic is. Like, they are constantly using magic in weird and fun ways. It's supposed to be a metaphor for the anime industry. Is it? I believe uh, one of the, the people behind the show has gone on record saying that. Huh. So it's about, uh, it's about a, a girl named Atsuko who is, like, kind of just a normal person who decides to go to witch school because she sees a performance by a, a, a witch named Shiny, Shiny Chariot and is so moved by it that she decides that she wants to do that and make people happy and perform for other people to bring joy into their lives. And she has her group of friends at school, uh, Susie, 
and Lote and Amanda and uh, Constance and Jasminka, and she also has a rival in the form of Deanna. And all of these characters ultimately, for the most part, play some role in what ends up being a big story. Like, it starts out just sort of being like a episodic kind of slice of life thing where each episode they have to deal with some new issue that pops up, usually because Atsuko does something dumb and like messes something up and they have to fix it. And usually it has some type of, you know, gives you a bit of a glimpse as to one of the characters, like either Diana, like Diana, Latte, Susie, one of them. Right. And then eventually it turns out that the world's magic supply is dying. And so um, Atsuko in episode one finds the staff that her idol Shiny Chariot used, the Shiny Rod, and she has to find basically like seven magic words to be able to unlock the hidden power of the shiny rod, which will give her access to world revitalization magic that basically will let her do whatever she wants to the to the world state. I think it was called world reconstruction. Something like that, world reconstruction magic. And so the second half is more focused on the search for these magic words. And she's guided by her uh, professor, Ursula, who is secretly Shiny Chariot. Right. And, like, the show is... Okay, so, get out. show is good. I think the show is very good. But it has a lot of structural issues in the way that it presents all of this. Yeah. It takes until episode 11 out of 26 for the game, for the show to go, oh, hey, there's actually a plot, instead of doing it a lot earlier. Right, like, it sets up this plot early on because, like, she gets the shiny rod and people comment about it. But, like, nothing happens to it for another, like, ten or so episodes, whereas, and I think this is, this is just true of the show, is, like, if you just reordered the episodes and did nothing else you could probably have a more solid experience. Like, if you start the plot, like, episode five, and, like, separate out the the magic word search more with, like, these slice-of-life stories, uh, you could probably come up with something that feels a little more focused. Yeah, because it... One of my worries during the, the airing of the first season was that I was wondering where the show was going, if it was just going to be, oh, this is going to be 26 episodic episodes of Akko and friends goofing off and doing magic, and I didn't know if it was going to do that or going to have a plot or whatnot. Yeah, it's, it takes a long time to get there, and finally it's like, oh, well, there's a plot. It's like, well, okay, well, we've been building up to something. But it's, it's just, it's weird, because, like, I remember reading an interview or something where the people who are writing this, writing Little Witch Academia, go like, oh, we had so many ideas and we couldn't fit them all in, but it, and it really feels like that, where, like, they're trying to fit in as many ideas as they have right early on before they get to the plot, whereas it might have been better suited to to expand that out more. Even then, they still throw in some of those extra ideas when the plot kicks in, like uh, Amanda and Akko infiltrating the boys' school to try and find uh, one of the words, or uh, Constance and Akko building a giant robot. Right, like, there's still more of that. So, like, they could have easily, like, moved the episodes around and had no real, like, consequence to it. And I think it would have come out better. But, like, what we got is still pretty good, I think. I think what we still got is good. Yeah, me too. And so, like, 
it is very focused on how like flashy and great the magic is. Like it, in comp- it's like it is very magical girl in tone and theme, in that it ultimately comes down to um, trying to make others happy through this power and focusing more on others than just like your own your own personal like uh, desires. Like anime. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, there's a lot of charming stuff there, especially as, like, Akko's learning to use magic, but, like, I don't know, again, the the pacing of it is just weird, because, like, you get some good character moments, like, um, Latte's episode, where basically they, um, they go to, like, a Twilight convention, or, like, the in-universe Twilight equivalent, and Latte kind of you know, learns about the the experiences of the the people who write this book series for the last hundreds of years, and whether or not she wants to take the role after winning this great competition uh, related to it. Like, that was a really good character episode of really humanizing Latte and giving her this bigger, this bigger personality than just, like, the smart one. And this was really early on, too. Yeah, it was, like, episode four or something. But then, like, Susie's episode isn't that, it feels like. It feels like Susie's episode is just another, like, comedy episode where, like, we don't really, we aren't really informed about the character anymore, and nothing really changes about the the character dynamics between her and the other, uh, and Akko or Latte. Yeah, it it feels like uh, Susie's episode was more of a love letter to various animation styles than anything else. Yeah, because it's just like, they go into her brain, and that's where we learn about all these different emotions that she's kind of stomped down to continue her, like, weird, disconnected, like, snarky tone. But, like, that never really develops. Yeah. And I think that's unfortunate, because eventually she just becomes friends with Akka, which is nice. But it's like, well, where did that come from? And then, like, Amanda Amanda and Constance's episodes, I think, are good, because it informs us a lot more about those characters, where they were really just kind of side pieces in the second movie that they did. Huh. Also, I could you could say that Amanda got two episodes with uh, her introduction episode being the uh, the broom race, right? Because we do learn a bit about the broom race, and then further we learn about like she kind of has this desire to skip school because she finds it mad lame. Yeah, yeah. And then Jasminka doesn't get an episode; she just continues to be kind of the comedy character who eats a lot. Yep. But even then, they don't use her enough for her to be a comedy character, so it's weird. <laughs> the show is very weird. It is a weird, weirdly structured show, but I think the whole makes it work because it's still very affecting by the end. You still see that these themes that they tried to build up come to a head at the end in a in a satisfying way with, you know, these these two conflicting adult characters, Ursula and sort of her um Friend? sort of like her, her own rival. She's kind of a rival. Kind of a rival, kind of a friend, in the same way that Diana and Akko are rivals and friends by the end of it. Yeah, and so, like, they have these conflicting ideals about what to do with the world reconstruction power, her and Croy. That's the name of the the rival. And, like, yes. and both of them are desperately trying to attempt to find this power and realizing that by the end, the important thing is the the joy of magic. It's about the the fun you have doing magic rather than this desire for power, which is particularly like Croy's issue. Croy is dealing with this feeling like she deserves this power and this strength this this magic gives over Chariot. Maybe because Chariot's like more aloof. 
But, like, there's this whole conflict there between, like, who is deserving of power and ultimately, like, what does it mean to have this power? Because Akko solves it by realizing that the, the important thing is the, is the joy of magic rather than the attempt to find this, this greater power, this greater meaning. Yeah. But it does a really good job. Like, there are a lot of cool characters. Like, even some of the, the human non-magical characters, like, um, like Andrew or like Frank are like fun to follow because they, they give this very different look at the magical world and the characters within it and the way that they interact. It's, it's, it's neat. Yeah, Andrew's arc was, uh, was pretty subtle, but also pretty good. Yeah, it, Andrew does, it's like a really good job of like inserting this character into disparate episodes, but always having him develop a little bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of glad that he and Akko are just pals. Yeah, I'm glad that there wasn't, there didn't end up being like a romance thing with there, even if it's like a little open ended with that. But like Andrew just being like supportive of, you know, the friends he's made like through Akko and also Diana. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, and it, it, it's all it's all about sort of the it's it's about inner strength rather than the strength that magic gives. Like as they go over Diana having lost her magic ability as a child and slowly fought her way back to being able to use magic to the point where she's like you know the next head of the family and one of the best uh, witches at Luna Nova. Yeah, like there are a lot of great character moments with like Diana and her family and all that. It's just like in this sort of messy series yeah it's it's a really flawed series but also it's it's got a lot of charm it's got a lot of heart and it manages to get it together when it counts yeah i think that's the thing is like by the end you're still satisfied even if like the the opening is a bit messy yeah it's got a like great humor to it i think it's 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 very good at being a funny series yeah it definitely has a lot of good goofs and gags yeah, like and just stuff like that you wouldn't see coming, but is not important enough to get like mad about, like as as a Deus Ex like um when they're doing the airship thing for the the big hunt with Constance and the airship for no reason, just because one of them thought it was cool and the other one worked off of it, is that uh Constance can turn it into just a mecha. I really hope that uh the US version of the Little Witch Academia game comes with the game that you can play as the mecha. Oh, that'd be cool. But yeah, it's it, Little Witch Academia. I'm glad it exists because it is uh, probably my favorite trigger thing. I'm glad that that like OVA came out as like a big animator expo sort of thing, and that it developed into something that like has a lot of cool ideas behind it, and is is just a, a celebration of animation and like especially like limited animation, which is like Trigger's thing. That I feel is like best executed in like uh, Little Witch Academia, because hmm. like I, I feel like there are a lot of um, critiques about like Kill a Kill's take on it, but Little Witch Academia takes a lot of cues from like American animation in the way that like just the absurdity of like expanding and like um, smears in a way that's very charming and like although it's limited in its animation, it still feels fluid like. Everything still looks great about Little Witch Academia. Yeah, it's it's a really good looking show. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that it exists, and I'm I'm still happy with what we ended up with, even if it's not the best version of itself. Yeah, <sighs> and that's all the shows from last season that we watched. Phew. 
Yeah, and I, you know, it's... Uh, as many shows as I dropped, I feel like what I came out with oh, on the on the whole was, like, really good. Like, I came out with a lot of really shows that I liked a lot and shows that I'm really excited for that are continuing. Like, there's very little that I finished and felt just like, eh, that was okay. Like, I, I feel strongly about all of them, even if it's Force Fairy 5 and it's complete confusion. Like, all of these I still have these strong feelings about, something that I really, um, that I'm taking away with me. Yeah, I, I feel like this is one of the better seasons that I've, uh, that I've watched. Yeah, certainly an upgrade from winter. I'm glad that, you know, spring had so many great shows, and hopefully with summer just starting as we record this, like, there's gonna be plenty of good stuff out there, too. Seems people are pretty positive about, like, the opening episodes that we've seen so far, like Fate Apocrypha and all that. Yeah, I enjoyed I enjoyed the uh, the first few episodes of what I've seen. Yeah, and there's um, even the Token Ranbu anime, which uh, I, people who don't really care about the series seem to be enjoying, just because the the action is well done by Ufotable. Huh. So you know, it's it it seems like it's a good season. We'll see how it turns out as it goes forward, but uh, it should be neat. And if Netflix isn't lying, and on the third they actually start simulcasting the two shows they picked up, that'd be even better. That would be great. You'll know by the time you listen to this episode, but we won't. It's the second here. But I'm, I would be really happy if that got changed, because, like, if US Netflix can get into the simulcasting business, I feel like they're going to make more money yeah. from anime fans. Also, um, late breaking news straight from Anime Expo, which is happening while we record. Uh, two new light novel translations have been announced by, I think, Viz Media. And so we're getting Reborn as a Vending Machine, Now I Wander the Dungeon? Uh, in English? I can't believe it. I can't believe that one. We're getting it. Uh, we're getting the one about the guy who dies saving a vending machine and reincarnates as a vending machine that a girl carries around with her. God! And we're not getting the one about the guy who turns into a sword, but we are getting uh, the hero and his elf bride open a pizza parlor where someone gets transported to a magical world and marries an elf and uh, starts a pizza shop. <laughs> I... <laughs> <laughs> yes! Uh, yeah, that. Isekai is good, actually. <laughs> I would love a slice-of-life anime about a fantasy pizza parlor. Yeah, that's that's good as hell. Because that might also be what um Restaurant from Another World is, and we'll have to see once that comes out. Oh, yeah, that... that That is, like, cafe-eating magical, yeah. Yeah, it's fantasy people eating our food. That is what I found out that it is. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Oh, I'm glad. And for this episode, before we go, we have some fan mail. Ah. This comes in from friend of the show, QB. It reads, In a season that seems to have been bursting at the seams with sequels, prequels, and spiritual successors, was there any one particularly original series that took you by surprise, or a moment that shook up the formula you were expecting in a unique way? Sincerely, the entire Forest Fairy 5. Well, thank you, QB. And I think we talked about this a little bit, just like some original shows that really surprised us, but is there one particular moment, like, from Recreators or... Um, Kado? Yeah, or Kado, or even, like, Grimoire of Zero, which is, like, an adaptation, but still something that could have shocked you. Something that isn't, like, one of the sequels. Was there something that 
really surprised you in a good way. Um, maybe not. <laughs> Kato is Kato is complicated, but it, it certainly surprised it's, you. It certainly surprised me. But uh, <laughs> uh, probably the end of episode four of Sagrada Reset, because if that didn't happen, I probably would have dropped the show. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, because that's it is a very it is a very extreme thing to happen in an otherwise like kind of tame show. Yeah. I think like with recreators you could take sort of that entire first episode because it is just like a very bombastic opening for the series. Oh yeah, the first episode was really good. Yeah, like it it really draws you in with that first episode. Like it is a very strong opening of just like really strong proof of concept stuff that also goes into episode two, but like recreators as a start is like maybe one of the best openings from this season, I think. In terms of just like individual moments, the moment when uh when Constance's boat transformed into a giant robot in uh, Little Witch Academia, that was shocking in a really good way. And it just becomes think- it just becomes Gurren Lagan. Like it's a very yeah. Gurren Lagan robot. Yeah, that was great. And that's just, I don't know, it's like, there is a definitely a bunch of stuff here that were just, like, really good individual moments of anime. And, like, there there is still plenty of new stuff coming out, like, original series like Recreators and even sort of Kado. Like, there's there's a lot to be mined from these these ideas that don't just come from manga or novels and stuff. Like, there is there is a space for original anime that definitely is, like, kind of being underutilized. Like, I want to see more things specifically built for animation. Yeah, I, I hope that more original stuff comes out in the future. Because we've seen that a bit with, like, video games, is like, stories, especially with, like, Yogo Taro's work, where it wouldn't be the same if it weren't a video game. Like, it, it plays with the tropes and stuff of gaming in such a way that, like, it couldn't be anything else. It uses the medium to its advantage. Yeah, and I think there's a, there's a space there where, like, adaptations can elevate something, but I want to see more things where it's specifically, like, benefited by being anime. Like, uh, what's, what's the original stuff coming out this season? Uh, Princess Principle could be something cool, and that's original. The Reflection. You know, there, there are these couple of series there that can really do something neat. Oh, uh, I, I remembered a thing about Princess Principle. Oh, did you? Yes, I I believe I remember that uh, one of the people behind um, Guilty Crown is working on it. It's it's half of the Code Geass duo. Oh, my goodness. So, hmm, wow, that really changes my perspective on what it could be. Because it could be really dumb now. (laughs) It could be. I hadn't even considered the idea of it being really dumb. <laughs> Damn, they got me. Oh, Princess Principal wins next season just for being so surprising. Oh, good. good. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, and I think Sakura Quest doesn't really have a lot of standout moments that, that really um, elevate it. I don't think, but I think the the whole of it is what makes it important. Like, if we're talking about things that really blew us away, there's nothing, I think, like, there's not, like, the one moment that convinces you that Sakura Quest is good. It's just a continuing development of 
already like good themes. I mean, there was a moment when I re- when I uh, realized that what this show was going to be is not what I thought it was, and that was when uh, Sane talked about how she got burnt out from her job and moved into the moved to the country to try and figure herself out. That was shocking in a really good way because I didn't think the show would touch on issues like that. Yeah, I guess there there is some of that where you don't expect certain themings to happen. But yeah, I, I think you know there's there's plenty of good original anime coming out this season, and there was some good stuff, like, uh, with Suki Gakure, I think, was really good just for the way that it took common romance tropes and really, like, built on them. It doesn't have to be something so unique and different. It, ha- it can be just, like, a really good execution of what already exists. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm just glad that more original stuff slowly seems to be coming out, and that not all of it's bad. It's not all Chaos Dragon. <laughs> Oh, I'm going to think about that for the rest of my life, and it's going to haunt me. Oh, but yeah. Um, so thanks for the question. I'm I'm always glad to talk about stuff like this that maybe doesn't fit into the the show proper. But uh, yeah. So this season we've got a couple of single servings coming up before we'll come back for the preview and review. So first up will be a single serving with friend of the show QB on uh, Humanity Has Declined, which is a light novel adaptation from, I think, like, four or five years back? It's a few years ago, but it's really good. Yeah, I've been here. I the people I, I don't hear a lot of people talk about it, but when they do talk about it, they talk about it very highly. So I'm excited to experience that and kind of talk about what it is, because I hear there's a lot of stuff that changes between it and the light novels that it's based on as well. So I'm interested to look into that. And then also... For the second Halloween spooktacular here at Coco Disaster, um, planning to talk with my friend the J of Spade about um, Satoshi Khan's first and maybe only anime series, Paranoia Agent. Ah, I've heard good things about it. Yeah, and I I think, you know, Satoshi Khan is well um, regarded for sort of like his his kind of unsettling work, and this seems to play into that in a horror aspect. I'm very interested to see how that turns out. But those are the two single servings we'll be having this season, and then follow up with our seasonal stuff. So, uh, thank you, as always, for listening. Uh, you can find Zane at at ZaneZero, X-A-I-N-Z-E-R-O. You can find me at at Chorpsway, C-H-O-R-P-S-A-W-A-Y. You can find the podcast at Coco underscore Disaster. These are all Twitter. And if you have any questions or thoughts that you want to send to us about Humanity Has Declined or a paranoia agent, or anything else you want to have discussed uh, during the seasonal stuff, uh, you can send that to TropesawaySA, that's C-H-O-R-P-S-A-W-A-Y-S-A at gmail.com, and we'll probably read it. And until next time, I've been Tropesaway. And I'm Zane Zero. And this has been Coco Disaster. Sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.